This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you a leg up in life. Today, by the way, no exception, even though it is Monday and you're trying to, you know, get caught up, it's time. It's time. Today we're going to talk about why we snap. Not that kind of snap. Not that kind. The other snap, like, yeah, Like, oh, I thought you meant like snap, crackle, pop that I have in my Rice Krispie treats. Ooh. By the way, who eats that as a cereal with milk in it? Anymore? Anybody? Nobody. Nobody. But it makes the best treat you can ever make, but you can't make treats and take them to school anymore. Because Colorado has legalized marijuana, so now you wow. can't take brownies or snap, crackle, pop treats anymore. I thought it was because maybe they manufactured the Rice Krispie treats in a state I, where corn was manufactured. I did see the report of no, uh, maybe. all these kids sick, basically, Yeah, from gummy bears. Yeah, wow. lots of gummy bears that aren't really gummy bears. No, they're adult gummy bears, they're, if you will. Uh, yeah, for adults only. So um, we will. We got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about why we snap. We've got a great interview that uh, we're going to be replaying for you um, to help you understand the reactive snapping and the going off that causes so many problems in our world today. Yeah, he's still snapping. I'm a fidget snapper. He's <laughs> he can't stop. Uh, we'll get to all that fun, of course, plus other headlines. In fact. Uh, apparently, one of the Trumps just admitted that they did talk to Russian I saw, lawyers. I saw today that it seems like uh, someone said it. It almost feels as if the talking point is that, yeah, we colluded, but it's not illegal. But I mean, it was a kinder, gentler, gentler collusion. Right. It's not a big deal. It's almost like right when it kind of disappears or it just seems like it's getting nowhere, then it gets somewhere. And even if nothing happened, which we don't know because yeah. this thing was just barely acknowledged Announce, right. and they, that you're supposed to have documentation of all meetings. Right. And it just keeps coming out that, oh, we had another one. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, there was just another one that we forgot. Oh, it's like six yeah. months later. Well, then there was later. that one. That one. The yeah, other we totally one. forgot. And then he, this one, they're saying that he walked in the room. This is Don Jr. Yeah. Walked in the room and didn't know who was in the room. And then when he found out who was in the room. Left. Hmm. He realized after he was in the room that this person isn't someone I should be talking with and then walked out of there. Why are you going into the room without knowing who's in there? Good. It's a great point. You're representing the – Well, your name is this, Donald Trump. Jr. At this point, it was the re- Republican he nominee, He was the GOP right? nominee, yeah. So it's like at some point, you need to know who's in there before you walk in the door. I think no matter what happens, the good news is um, that uh, Ann Conway – Kelly Ann Conway is yeah. on the case now. Carrie Ann Conway is our one of our new. Uh, she's one of our new reporters. Oh, is she? we couldn't get Kellyanne. Yeah, so you got her her twin sister Carrie Ann. Yeah. Uh, well, Kelly Ann Conway's on the scene. She's now protecting the president, and uh, she's taking care of it. So it's all it's, a, it's all good. Or Alternative she, facts. Is she just kind of muddying the water so people are not confused about what the White House is saying? Well, something's going on. Okay. I can never understand. Is she working for the White House or is she White House adjacent? I think I know she's in the White House sitting in briefings. And, I think or she's not, in or... because she also has her own staffers and okay. She's one of those that has their own team. Gotcha. She has her own like media. And, yeah, she's yeah. like over communications gen- generally, but not with a specific role. 
kind of an advisory role, but not a real – she's not like the communications director. She's just kind of a, a floater, floater Because she's always off to the side when they have the media yeah. press conference. Spicer's okay. up there sweating. She's off to the side. Yeah. I can't stand floaters. Yeah, me either. Me either. We'll get to uh, we'll get to all that fun, plus uh, why we snap, of course, and other crazy uh, empty news and headlines that you may need you, that you didn't even know you needed, but you're going to need it. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A heat wave across parts of California fueling wildfires in the state with the Alamo Fire in Santa Barbara County spreading across 23,000 acres, causing 200 people to evacuate their homes. A separate fire near Lake Tremura, I think it's called, has engulfed 7,800 acres. A fire north of Sacramento has torched 4,000 acres, around 1,000 firefighters working to contain that fire. Uh, which just 10% contain low humidity, high heat, and winds are right, and there's just a lot of stuff to burn, says uh, the Santa Barbara County spokesperson. I'm so sick of the heat. Fires. Honestly, and it does, the fire, I mean, it's, this is uh, this is always a bad time, so yeah. hang on, everybody. Facebook Inc., Twitter Inc., and Snap Inc., Snap, you know, chat, still uh, are, are seeking online rights to video highlights from next year's World Cup, soccer's most popular tournament, as really? it says here. Uh, the companies have offered 21st Century Fox tens of millions of dollars for rights to highlights from the Russian-hosted games that air in the U.S., according to the people involved with this who declined to provide more specific terms or asked not to be identified because they're afraid because they're not supposed to talk about it and they'll get fired, mm. which is always the way this works. Yeah. Fox hasn't decided whether to sell exclusive rights to any one buyer or to spread them around. Social media's growing interest in video includes sports, giving Fox a potentially significantly new Revenue source for the games, as well as a tool to promote its coverage. Fox holds U.S. rights to the quadrennial event every four years, and mm. will uh, and will air games on broadcast and cable TV. The company paid a reported four hundred million for multi-year World Cup rights. The World Cup is attractive target for social media companies eager to exhibit more premium video. In twenty fourteen, World Cup final was viewed more than 25 million people in the u.s and most watched soccer match in the country's history with many of next year's games and odd hours because well it's in russia it's on the yeah, other side hello. of the planet the highlights may be in greater demand to hop on and look at facebook and twitter oh, or snapchat and you want to see those highlights but they have to sell the rights and fox is thinking like do we sell it to everybody do we sell Pay it to nobody yeah. who knows so we'll see what happens maybe you'll see them on your Facebook feeds, or people just pirate them like they do yeah. and then get I mean, sued. When in doubt, pirate it out. <laughs> That's how Mama used to say. A teen staffer at a Colorado camp fought off a bear while waking up Sunday to uh. find the animal biting his head and trying to drag him away. Yeah. The 19-year-old woke up around 4 a.m. to a, quote, crunching sound with his head inside the mouth of the bear, which was trying to pull uh. him out of a sleeping bag as he slept out 48 miles northwest of Denver. So just, you know, up there. Ugh. The teen punched and hit, and other staffers who were sleeping nearby yelled and swatted at the bear, which eventually left, he said. The teen said that the bear dragged him 10 to 12 feet before he was able to free himself. The crunching noise, I guess, was the teeth scraping against the skull, as he says. Uh. <laughs> I like how he had to really define what that noise was. I think we all kind of knew what that was. Um, he taught. He teaches wilderness survival at the camp. So really? Well, he did, he did a great job. Now he has firsthand knowledge. Dylan and the other staffers were near teepees where 12- and 13-year-old campers were sleeping. None of them were hurt. Black bears usually are not aggressive, but have attacked several people in the West in recent weeks. West, I mean, Alaska. Well, yeah. There's been some other ones, but, you know, there's been three or four in Alaska. Unbelievable. What am I going to do? I wish... I wish the bear had maybe gotten this late. 
Oh, boy. crunch um so as we learned from the alaska attack you're not supposed to play dead don't play dead anymore fight back you fight for your right now it says run and evade but if that's your last choice then fight don't just fall down and play dead it seems like if you run the bear you're just going to get the bear to chase you well so turn and fight run downhill and yeah, zigzag because they have shorter front legs yeah. than back legs. It'll trip and fall, and but you'll but see a ball of hair roll by. Don't most people end up camping on flatland? Eh, that's usually the idea. But so then you, know, you got to find the hill. Do it strategic. <laughs> have a hill nearby. Just keep oh, one handy. Put the front of your put the front of your tent always to the hill. And finally, Spider-Man: Homecoming managed to swing past 100 million domestically wow. in the opening weekend. Impressive 117 million opening weekend. That's the domestic money. Sony's second highest opening ever. Wow. The biggest, Spider-Man 3, which was the emo Spider-Man, which was a bad movie. Is that the one with, like, uh, eyeliner, dark eyeliner Spider-Man? At one point, he gets, like, floppy, greasy hair, and he's singing and dancing. In a, yeah, that was a weird yeah, scene. Like, what's going on? What just happened here? Spidey he gets, went emo. He gets, he gets all moody for some reason. Yeah. It's just, it was a bad movie. Overall, the film had $257 million around the world this weekend. That was a good weekend. Yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, we had a big debate Wait a in minute. my class. He just said it was a good movie. It was a good movie. I said it was a good weekend, I think. No, no but it was a good movie. You, we never get this type of a positive review from Terry. I'm usually like, He's always hey, oh, indifferent, yeah. but yeah. this is a positive review. I, you, I enjoyed yeah, it. <laughs> you got your tickets early. Would yeah. you? Because uh, we had a debate in my um, Sunday school class. Mm, the the uh, right place for this debate. The right debate. place for this yes. debate. And it's perfectly balanced male-female, oh, whether, huh. whether Wonder Woman's a better movie oh. or Spider-Man. They're different movies. Sure, that's what I said. That's what I heard. But yeah. Which would you say if you had to choose just one? Because, like, let's say I was only going to go to one of the movies. Did you even see Wonder Woman? I did. Okay. That's why I'm like, hmm, which one would I choose? I liked Wonder Woman more because it had you no, know material that had never been explored before. Okay. Cool. Whereas Spider Man, this is the third time in 15 years they've tried to reset this thing. Terry, this is sexist. It kind of is, but uh, I didn't. I enjoyed. I think I enjoyed Wonder Woman more. There you go. See, I had one of the girls in my class that hated Wonder Woman. For why? Some, I don't know. She too much woman power. Too she much. Couldn't explain why exactly. Really. Just, she was really mad. She fought the god of war and won. Wow. Spider-Man took down a guy that was like tinkering with alien hardware, basically. I once fought the mm. law yeah. and the law won. Yeah. Though Spider-Man did ride an airplane. That's a great song. Spider-Man. In, into he, a beach in Jersey. He did? Yeah. You have well, to see the movie. It's a whole thing. He, he rides an airplane? Yeah. Was it, a, was it a, an airplane you could see through? Uh, it was cloaked. Because you know. No. Comic books. Wow. Speaking of cloaking, um, Which Bertha... This won't have anything to do with cloaking. Go ahead. The world's oldest hippo has died. Yeah, we heard that on the BBC. Why would they name... It seems... It seems rude that you would name her Bertha. The name's a little spot on, yeah. What's wrong with Bertha? You're fat She's shaming a hippo. She's got a wide Bertha. Yeah, you're hmm. fat shaming a, a hippo. And by the way, 60... What was it? 65? 65 years old. Would it be inappropriate to call a hippo slim? Yeah. That, then you're just drawing attention. You're just mocking? So what should we call yeah. him? Just Robust? J- Jimmy. Husky? Jimmy, Jimmy the hippo. Slimmy? Girthy? Girtha? Yeah. That's got to be See? ironic. Harry the hippo. That's Harry? a cute name. By the way, hungry, um, hungry? 65 years <laughs> of age seems like a, a – unless like do they have dog years? Do they have hippo years? I don't know. Every year in a hippo's life is like 10 years. I heard she – 
I heard she broke her hip, and once that happens, it really just goes yeah. down quickly. Don't, they just, fl- don't they just float around the pool eating watermelons and pumpkins and stuff? And people? Well, I think in the zoo, when they're confined to a cement pond. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's all they little Right, so in the lettuce. wild. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the, in the book James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl, his parents huh. are consumed wow. by a, a hippo. Well, are you taking a, me back to my fourth grade years? There's a topical pop culture really? reference. Is that how his kids That's how he becomes an orphan. He has to go live with his wicked ants. T- attacked by hippo. Now, yep. I shared a story in Colombia. They had a problem with wild hippos. Yeah, do you remember that? But that was because the drug cartels wanted a uh, exotic zoo. So oh. because they had all That's this right. money, they bought the so, hippos. Yeah. And you have an exotic zoo. And then when they were arrested and broken up, the no one accounted for the hippos, and they're just wandering the countryside, breaking into farms and oh my terrorizing goodness. people. You know, um, speaking of terrorizing people, I went to the rodeo yeah. uh, Friday night. Rained out. Really? We got started. It didn't rain that long. I know, but it rained about an hour in okay. Draper. And horrible. Like, because there was, I don't know, thousands of people ready to watch the rodeo. We had already seen the Buck and Broncos. Right. We had already seen the calf roping contest. Then lightning started striking. And people got real worried. You're standing on an aluminum. You oh, know, come on. Yeah. Were stand. there going to be fireworks afterwards? I don't know. I don't think so. Was this involved with any sort of uh, demolition derby or no? No, oh, okay. no. This is just this was just good old fun a, for. I don't know if it was a combo. Situation. And it starts to rain, but what do you do? Yeah. So we hmm. just kind of stood under a cover and you found the tallest tree. Waited for an, about 35, 40 minutes, and then it you sat broke. a spell. We sat. We just sat ourselves. So a spell. did festivities resume? Or we left. We went home. We oh. watched a movie, and then they started them up again. Do you think PETA had anything to do with the rain? I think so. Hmm. Then I did a little uh, fireside speech last night uh, it, with some friends and neighbors, and it started raining again. Hmm. And then it gets all humid when it's 99 degrees and raining. You were outside? Yeah. Did anybody check the weather? These things are published. Well, but they're little, they're little summer storms that come in really fast. Oh, good. Okay. Hey, by the way, yeah. it's the first day that it's going to be under 90 degrees in several weeks. Hold on. It is? Today? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 89. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Today's the day to go walking. <laughs> in a mall. <laughs> an air-conditioned mall. mall. Wow, that's great news, except that probably isn't the case in Arizona and mm. everywhere else, uh, Nevada, where everyone else is just melting. Well, that's why we have air conditioning and high electrical bills. Man. By the way, it's getting kind of hot in here. I know. I, I tried to turn the air on, but uh, hmm. I don't know. I so there were no – you saw the bucking Broncos. No, I was, I was you, bummed. Did you I see wanted... some clowns and barrel uh-huh. action? Okay. No, we didn't see any. We saw no a clowns. clown. Just one? Okay. And it was – sadly, it was the last uh, – it was the last um, – what do we call it? Event? Presentation okay. of this clown. He was right. never going to be a clown His retirement. Again. And they don't call them clowns anymore. Oh, what do they call them? Funny men. Ooh, Okay. I still like to call hmm. them clowns, but they get a little irritated by that. I think they don't want to. I mean, ever since the whole clown It does have problem, sort of a negative connotation. Well, yeah, and clowns were scaring people all over the well, city. Well, that's why you say rodeo clown. That's a different type no, of clown. No, now they call him a rodeo funny man. But you never got to the point where they had the bull no. and the guy trying to uh, not die. No. Man. It was, it was, it was, it was tragic. Hmm. We, now, apparently, we're going to go every year. Oh, great. It's you going to get rained out once a year? 
It's the first time I guess this this has ever been rained out. Mm. When we were standing under this canopy, I was talking to the guy that was in charge of all of the livestock. The clown? And no, he was the, just oh, the okay. handler. Mm-hmm. Oh, and wow. he just said, this has never happened before. Mm. You know what they need is a clown. We had a great discussion. Though. I got to ask a lot of questions about the rodeo. What, a husbandry type a questions? A lot of animal husbandry nice. questions. <laughs> they need a clown handler because they can get way out of hand. Oh, yeah. In fact, we used to have a sponsor... Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, bou- we'll be getting into that. The bounty hunter. Yeah. The mm. clownty hunter. Right. Oh, those were the days. We got a lot to cover, a lot to do today. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about why we snap, how to understand the rage circuit in your brain. What is it that makes you go off or makes others go off? It might save your life if you could just learn how to handle it a little better. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, start off your Monday. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've all seen a story in the news somewhere where a seemingly stable, rational person commits an uncharacteristic act of violence. These episodes of rage often end tragically with a little explanation as to what caused the outburst. Our next guest uh, is Douglas, Dr. Douglas Fields. He is a neurobiologist whose recent book uh, is titled Why We Snap. Understand the rage circuit in your brain, and it explains the cause of these sudden outbursts of rage. rage. According to Dr. Fields, the violent behavior is the result of the clash between our evolutionary hardwiring and the triggers from our contemporary world. Joining us from Bethesda, Maryland, Dr. Douglas Fields. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Fields. Hi, Matt. Great to be on your show. Great to be on your. Great to have you. I'm so excited. We had to postpone you the other day uh, from being on the show, but I had to have you on as soon as I could because this topic I see a lot. I mean, I guess there's different types of snapping, right? But w- I-, I see clients that fight with their partner and react and get very and have very quick triggers. What is what is going on? First of all, explain what snapping is. And, and, uh, and why did you choose to study this, of all things? Right. Well, for much the same reason uh, that you just mentioned, it's very intriguing, particularly uh, from a neuroscience perspective, because snapping is this sudden, impulsive, aggressive, or violent uh, reaction to something in the environment. But we don't call it snapping unless it's inappropriate to the mm. situation. If it's appropriate, we call it uh, quick thinking or yeah. heroism, you know? Right. But if you look in the brain, it's the same circuit. And the thing that intrigued me about snapping is that it's not deliberate, it's not conscious, um, and that's what leaves us feeling bewildered uh, after, you know, you wrap a golf club around a tree or smash <laughs> a dish and immediately regret it. And Why did I do that? So that's what I under- wanted to understand. And those are two clues. The fact that it's very rapid and that it's not conscious are two clues to how it, this circuit works in the brain. And inappropriate. And inappropriate. Yes. Right? I mean, isn't that – it's interesting because, like, you'll hear stories of heroism where someone will stop a mugger and they really were snapping, except we praise that. And then, right, like you said, somebody, you know, wraps a golf club or throws a club into the lake and we look at them like, man, Larry's out of control. Is, right. it, well, is it controllable? Well, it is controllable. Um, but in the, in the first part to controlling it is to understand the circuitry. We don't have this circuit. We have this circuitry because we need it. 
It's life-saving, and we need it for the reasons that you alluded to. It really is part of the brain's threat detection mechanism. Um, but uh, it, it does get misfired, particularly in the modern world, because we have the same brain we had 100,000 years ago, right. but the world's entirely different. So that leads to misfiring. Um, but the important thing to understand is that we're all wired for violence. Hmm. Um, you know, we just heard about Kyle Odom, that, that, you know, the person who, who shot, is suspected of shooting the pastor. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's an example of somebody who's apparently mentally ill. That's not what I'm talking about. When I read the papers every day, it's these, you know, domestic disputes, barroom brawls, uh, workplace shootings, people who are not mentally ill, and we just say they snap. So that's what I'm, what I'm interested in. We all have the capacity for violence. It's in a part of the brain that's not conscious. It's in what's called the hypothalamus, and this is deep in the brain, same part of the brain that controls sexual behavior mm. and, and feeding and thirst. So it's and, very, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a base oh, yeah, drive. It's not verbal and it, if, or conscious, and if you stimulate neurons in this region with an electrode, the animal will instantly attack and kill another animal in the cage. This is called the hypothalamic attack area of the brain. So we all have this because we need it. We need violence to protect ourselves, to protect our offspring. Um, we're carnivores as a species, uh, and we don't need to be taught this behavior. But then the question becomes, what trips this circuit? And that's what's uh, very interesting, and that's the new, the new uh, research. Because if you think about it, no animal is going to engage in violence or a human being uh, lightly. Uh, engaging in violence is very risky. Mm -hmm. And although, as you said, it seems like almost anything can set somebody off and, uh, to snapping, that's not true. There are only very specific triggers. And in the book, Why We Snap, I identify nine of them that will cause this response. Um, and these are independent circuits in the brain. That's the new neuroscience. Wow. So, yeah, so that, that, that's the key, the key finding. If you can understand what these circuits are that will stimulate the attack area, and I described the new science that's traced these out, um, and you can identify, if you have a sudden rise in anger, whether one of these circuits is the reason for your anger, then you can diffuse it. Well, and this is what's so strange because uh, apparently some of these triggers, I mean, it makes sense to attack if you're being attacked or if you're so, if you're cornered, if you're threatened, if your child's being attacked or hurt. But to we, I am assuming we could also snap just because um, our wife is questioning our loyalty. Um, you're right, but it's because of. Uh, a one trigger. Of these, one of these triggers that makes sense biologically. So yeah. Too close to this as human beings, you have to step back and look at the brain the way I do. Yeah. Neuroscientists look at the circuits, and I'm, you know I, I see the same circuits in animals that are in human brains, and there are only nine triggers. Um, but but the trick is that you know trying to identify them sometimes in the modern world is a little bit tricky. Uh, for example, on road rage. But uh, if you can do that. Two things will happen. You're driving down the road. Suddenly you feel this, uh, this overwhelming anger. If you can instantly say, is it one of these triggers? And I've given them a mnemonic, life morts, mm -hmm. which I can explain to okay. help people quickly identify it. If you identify that your anger is being provoked by one of these nine triggers, you'll know two things. You'll know that you're pressing on neural circuitry designed by evolution to release violence, potentially deadly violence. And that's why we see deadly violence erupt on the road. Um, and secondly, if you can, in that same instant, realize that this is being provoked inappropriately, it's really a misfire, then the anger will go away. Hmm. 
because the anger, emotion of anger is the result of your threat detection mechanism in your brain preparing you to fight. Now, you're, but you're kind of cognitively, I guess, overriding the hypothalamus by, by just by recognizing it, aren't you? Yes, well, exactly. We, the, this circuitry is under control of the, of the prefrontal cortex, um, mm. And so it can be controlled. And in Why We Snap, I interview a lot of people who have developed, uh, who work in threatening situations, race car drivers, SEAL Team 6, Secret Service agents, fascinating people, but also nonviolent people like the religious group Jains and Quakers. Um, and they optimize and control this uh, threat detection circuitry in the brain. I'll give you an example. So if, you, if somebody bumps into you, you will instantly uh, respond aggressively, defensively. That's one of the triggers. You know, we call that self-defense trigger. In the, in the mnemonic, that's life or limb. You, will, you or any animal will engage in violence if you are uh, threatened, you know, attacked. But if that person bumps into you and immediately says, oh, excuse me, what happens? Yeah, diffuse. goes away. So you can do that same thing to yourself. Um, in the same situations, if you can identify these triggers, and you know the anger management approach is, is helpful, I, you know, especially with chronic stress and whatnot. But often, when somebody's angry, <laughs> telling them to calm down doesn't help. It just right. makes it worse. And even telling yourself to calm down doesn't work. Much better to ask, "Why am I angry?" Interesting. Like, yeah, ask a question to. I, I guess that drives you to the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, because um, is it? I noticed just driving with my wife, she'll startle, like thinking a car is about to crush on top of us in a horrible accident, and um, and the minute she startles, it her startle startles me, and it I can just feel I'm immediately amped up, like wanting to attack. Right. Well. Again, this is the threat detection mechanism of the brain, and it's an amazing mechanism. So um, it's unconscious for the two reasons. Um, it has to happen fast. If it went to the conscious part of the brain, the cortex, that's too slow. Right. And also, you're taking in too much information as your wife is driving. Think about all the internal and external uh situational information that her body is taking in through all her senses. All of that sensory information goes to this part of the brain, the, the amygdala, before it goes to your conscious mind. Mm-hmm. So our brain is always on the lookout for threats. Now, what you described is a situation where you start to feel under stress. Yeah. What that is, is your brain's threat detection mechanism taking in all this information that would overwhelm your conscious mind, concluding you're in danger. And the only way it can communicate that to your cerebral cortex, to your consciousness, is through this nonverbal emotion, which we call chronic stress. Mm. But we have all kinds of emotions that are the result of our threat detection mechanism trying to communicate, and it's the way it communicates to the conscious brain. You know, fear means you're in immediate danger. Um, You know, jealousy, uh, anger, these are all different emotions um, that your threat detection mechanism in your brain is using to convey the threat to your conscious brain. But the final point I didn't get to is that when you're in a threatening situation, you put all of these triggers on high alert. And so they're more likely to misfire. And that's what happens on the freeway or in any kind of stressful, chronic stressful situation. That makes sense. If you're in a threatening environment, you want to have your threat detection mechanism on high alert. Yeah. So, but it really, then you're, then you are amped and more likely to, to make a, 
a, a triggering mistake. Exactly. We we don't want to we don't want to inhibit the the good snapping. We want to inhibit the misfiring. But you know, if it's on a hair trigger, like any burglar alarm or any you know even you know firearm that's <laughs> with the safety off, it's more likely to misfire. Hmm. So so you know, a lot of chronic stress. We know we're on chronic stress. You and I both know what that feels yeah. like. Um, and you may not be able to control it. They may be life events, you know, death in the family or financial situations, um, and you can't really control it. But if you can be aware that, listen to your, your, your uh, threat detection mechanism, you're under chronic stress, you need to be very careful uh, and that you're going to trip one of these triggers uh, inappropriately. Mm. No, it, and it totally makes sense. I mean, if you're underslept, if you're if you're working crazy hours trying to make something happen, the the odds go up, you know, incredibly higher to that you're going to have a, a misfire. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Doctor Douglas Fields, who is the author of Why We Snap: Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. Excellent insight, isn't it, into what um, what really is going on in your mind, your brain. I mean, you can rationalize it all you want, uh, but there are ways to kind of take this on. It sounds like there's nine triggers. We'll come back and talk about some of the triggers. Also want to find out if uh, if there's any direction based on, you know, uh, based on gender. Men more likely to snap than women and why. We'll get into that as well. Plus, uh, I want to hear the story behind the story. Dr. Douglas Fields has an interesting reason for why he even, why where he has experienced this snap Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever just snapped? Every day. Ben is like taking copious notes on today's guest. Uh, ben also just reminded me his favorite uh, member of the Rice Krispie Trio Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Snap. I relate to him the most. <laughs> He's got that quick trigger. Joining us is Dr. Douglas Fields. He is the author of the book, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. He's a neuroscientist uh, and a respected one and a senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health. He's not just talking about, you know, when somebody has a mental health breakdown, like we hear in the news so many times, and then they go on some shooting spree. He's talking about when your brain goes off and has an immediate kind of reactive response to an event. And... um, especially an inappropriate response. If it were appropriate, we'd call it heroism. We'd call it, what a stud. But when, you know, when it turns kind of ugly, it's, it's, a, it's snap. It's a, it's a moment when we, I guess we're hijacked is what I call it by our brain. Dr. Douglas Fields, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love, I mean, I do with my clients, I call it being hijacked and um, but this is more than just – this is a chemical reaction is really what you're having, right? Well, it's neurocircuitry. And, yeah. And, and, and I understand what you mean by hijack, but this is going on constantly. This is the circuit that protects you. You know, if a, if a basketball comes flying at your face and you dodge, uh, take aggressive action before ever um, – 
you know, even consciously uh, knowing that that you're in danger. Yeah. This is the same circuitry. So I understand what you mean by hijack, but but, but it's, it's every it, day. It, it's every day, but it does misfire, and particularly so in the modern world. And the misfiring. I mean, I guess part of it is there's just too many. There's too many things operating on us today than 100,000 years ago. I mean, 100,000 years ago, this was used to make sure that the tiger or whatever didn't eat us, the saber-toothed, whatever, tiger didn't eat us. But now it's it's not about the tiger. It's about the car that almost hit me. It's about another red light. Are you kidding me? Right. It's about all of these things. Right. So wow. that, that gets into the, to the nine triggers that yeah. we have wired into our brain. Let's go into some of those. All right. So um, that, uh, there won't be time to do it in detail, but to give your listeners the, the idea, for example, we all know the mama bear response. Yeah. You get between a mother and her, her uh, child, threaten the child. There's no conscious thought involved. It's all-out aggression to protect her child. That's hardwired in the brain, in this uh, same region of the brain. It's a parent. It doesn't have to be a, a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, in animals, we can see that circuit activated. Put a, uh, uh, when a mother's a rat's pup is being uh, threatened, we, can then, we know exactly which circuit it is. We can then knock that circuit out, and the mother will no longer protect her pups, but she still will have these rapid defensive aggressive responses to other triggers. For mm. example, the self-defense one I mentioned. So in order to uh, recognize these circuits. I don't use the scientific jargon. I've given this mnemonic so that, to help you remember them. Yeah. Life, life morts. So L is life or limb. That's if you're attacked, you will fight. I is insult. I'll go quickly through and then yeah. we'll come back. F is family. That's the mother uh, bear response. E is environment. Um, basically, territorial animals will re- resort to violence to protect their territory. Humans are fiercely territorial. You know, uh, trespassers will be shot. Somebody coming yeah. home, you know, you, you, if you have to, you'll physically get rid of them. That's the E, environment trigger. M is mate. Um, aggression is used in acquiring and uh, maintaining mates in mammals and primates. Uh, o is order in society. Um, it's, and it's remarkable. All these triggers are double-edged sword because you just mentioned one. Say somebody runs uh, a stop sign. We're angry. Yeah. And it's because this person has violated the orders, uh, the rules of society. So we're social animals. If you, your success, your survival depends on being part of the society. Right. And all social animals use violence to maintain the structure of society. And so do we. We use police now to mete out that violence. But it's so remarkable that you will get angry when somebody uh, doesn't follow the orders, uh, the, the rules. And that's what happened to Bernie, right? Right. It, uh, when... When uh, in the debate, Hillary starts speaking out of term. So mm. that, that, oh, that's that interesting. Like, yeah, because he went off. Yeah. But, I mean, he didn't, like, go crazy, but there was no. this moment that almost seemed inappropriate. No, but he was angry. For Bernie, and, right. Anger is to prepare you to fight, so you have to look back and then, why are you angry? The same reason in road rage, when somebody starts to cut into the lane when you're merging, why do mm-hmm. you get angry? You get angry because the person is violating the rules, and at one time you would have to deal with that physically yourself. R is resources. We'll engage in uh, aggression, you know, to protect our resources, just like a family pet will if you get near his food dish. At the mm-hmm. time. T is tribe. Um, we are uh, we are tribal animals. We, uh, you know, when we evolved in the plains of Africa, when we encountered another group, that was a dangerous threat to our resources and survival. 
this is of course the basis for uh you know gangs and and wars and um but it's also what allows us to work together cohesively as mm. a society and, and and it's remarkable that well, we can go you know shirts and skin yeah and and just in the most elite and high rapid <laughs> endeavor operate as teams and well and sports one, rivalries right i mean yeah all of a sudden, we're mad because so-and-so won the game. Yeah. yeah. So, again, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you, you can't have one without the other. The last one is S for stopped. Um, any animal that's restrained will uh, respond aggressively, you know, chew his paw off to get out of a trap. I mean, Aaron Ralston, the backpacker, did that, you know, and it was life-saving, cut off his own arm. Mm-hmm. So that explains in traffic why, you know, you're suddenly um, everything stops, as you said. Well, why are you angry? I know humans have a range of emotions. Wow. Why, why aren't you sleepy or bored? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you ready to go track down and kill, you know, kill yeah. the fight? Some people do. Isn't that interesting? Because every it's one because of those makes sense. I mean, that list of these are all just triggers, right? So They're all triggers. They're, but they, they're not from a point, perspective of behavior. They're from a perspective of brain circuitry. Mm. And that's the example. If you can see that, okay, I understand I'm angry because traffic stopped and you know, this S trigger in my brain knows about being grabbed by the ankles, but, you know, uh, driving a car is 100,000 years ahead of this circuitry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a misfire, and you go, well, of course, you know, getting in a fight's actually not going to do anything or actually make it worse. The anger goes away. And um, so th- this is really interesting because as a behaviorist almost, that this is how I, I would look at this all behaviorally. And you're, but you're saying this, our brain's, have circuitry wired to protect us with these nine types of triggers that would create more of an automatic response. Right. This is a different perspective. Yeah. It's no, a, brilliant. The psychology is great, but there's a rich literature as totally. you know, on that. This is a totally different perspective from new methods to trace out these circuits in the brain and see that, you know, that we have them, and most of the time they work great, but sometimes they misfire. Well, and again, I guess this is, this is, this is, it would be the evolution, right? So we've evolved this kind of security net to protect us, how on earth do I use other parts of my evolution, like the prefrontal cortex, uh, to, to kind of circumvent the trigger? Well, uh, I talk about that in the book. It is part of the mechanism. You can inhibit this response, and of course drugs and alcohol interfere with this. Teenagers don't have the prefrontal cortex developed, so that's why uh, it's it's very uh, difficult for them to control this and I think more helpful for them to understand why they're angry in the situation. So, Mm. you know, I I interview SEAL Team 6 members. They talk about how they developed this and also the genes, the the ability to control this. And it works both ways. You can have unconscious, you can have this, you know, top-down and bottom-up control of this threat detection circuitry, uh, which I explain. Man, is it um, is it something that do men have this like are they wired differently? Are they wired with just a stronger response, kind of a more a stronger fight or flight? Or is it what is it that would make more men be in prison than women? Yeah, Yeah, great question. Great. Um, You know, the most important factor in aggression, human aggression. Mammalian aggression is sex. Um, Ninety percent of all the prisoners uh, in prison for violent crimes are men. Hmm. Um, or, and, but at the same time, 90% of all the awards for heroism given by the Carnegie Foundation are given to men. Uh, and a quarter of those were given to men who sacrificed their life in an instant uh, mm. for a stranger. And they always say, you know, the ones who survive afterwards say, I don't know, I didn't think, I just reacted. One of these triggers was tripped. 
Um, and they so men, men men do respond differently. There are a lot of fascinating differences uh, between aggression between men and women, and between the brain circuits that are different in men and women. And it again goes down to evolution. It makes no sense for for uh, a woman to get in a physical fight with a with a, a guy who weighs 100 pounds more than she right. does. So women don't do that. They engage in indirect aggression, gossip, ganging up, uh, sabotage, poisoning, those kind of things. Um, <laughs> But also, the sad fact is, you and I wandering around the streets at night don't worry about being sexually assaulted. And, you know, the horribly sad fact is no woman can ever not have that in the back of her mind. Right. Um, and so this kind of different threat that affects women has changed their threat detection mechanisms and make, makes uh, women's threat detection mechanisms different in some respects from men. So research shows brainwave recording and functional brain imaging shows that women are much better, much faster at divining intentions and threats from facial expressions. Mm. Um, and another example is that in times of uh, stress, women use the left hemisphere and men use the right hemisphere. Now, uh, in normal situations, we're switching back and forth between the left and the right because right. the right hemisphere is building up this big picture, synthesis. The left is breaking it down and looking at all the details. Um, but in times of stress, the sexes cleave so that the females look at all the details and the males look at the grand picture. And I saw this in my own in my own case uh, when, when I was uh, robbed in Barcelona with my daughter and uh, we were being pursued by this gang and it was just so obvious that, that Kelly uh, could spot these uh, gang members quickly, much before I could. Mm. I'm thinking about big strategies. What am I going to do when I encounter them? You know? And she's, she's down there in, uh, in the weeds picking these guys out before they're on us. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I see it when we get into relationships. Uh, the research shows that about 70% of the time women are more inclined to pursue the conversation. And men tend to withdraw from the conversation, and I wonder seventy percent of the time. And I wonder if it's not because um, of these triggers. Well, yeah, like they know, want to avoid the trigger. They know a trigger is going to get fired. Well, again, you know, our brain this is a product of the course of um, survival of the fittest over the last hundred thousand years, and the traditional roles of men and women are quite different over that period, and have given very different sorts of threats. Of course, today we live in a very different world, but nonetheless, uh, we have this same circuitry. So yes, men uh, and women are very different. This, this, this idea of uh, the, the explanation for women looking at details in a threatening situation is not really understood, but one thought is that in general, in, in uh, mating, uh, Males audition and females make the decisions. So you mm. think of you know birds with uh, wild plumages and and dances. The females are making critical mate selection decisions based on real subtle differences in plumage and that kind of thing. And so you know the uh, same thing probably goes on today. You know, but before before she gives you your phone number, she's already wondering, you know, are you going to take out the garbage? Yeah. Or am I going to be picking up on this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Is know? he going to talk to me? Yeah. No, it's yeah. true, huh? And the guy's thinking big picture things. Right. Interesting. Well, we appreciate it. This is such great insight. Um, again, the book is called uh, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. And uh, Dr. Douglas Fields, thank you so much for being with us and teaching us all of these, uh, these incredible just new, new tools for us. 
Thanks, Matt. I have to add a dis- disclaimer because yeah, you mentioned that I work at the NIH and I do run a lab here. But, of course, this book is not no, uh, not, not connected to the government. NIH. Yeah. Many would say, thank heavens, Doug. <laughs> Appreciate I have, that. I have no comment. I know, I know. Good stuff. Uh, he he does run a lab there, folks, and really a, a renowned uh, uh, neurobiologist. So honored to have him on the show again. Go check out the book "Why We Snap." Man, interesting, isn't it? What we are learning about ourselves and our own um, our own you know hidden strengths, hidden I guess triggers. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Now, here's the deal. If, do you have uh, any trouble sleeping Because if you do, boy, oh boy, have I got a surprise for you. According to Inc. Magazine, science has now declared that there is a secret to getting a good night's sleep, and you won't believe it. Um, Sleep, obviously, it's it's for some, it's very hard to come by. You can't. some just can't fall asleep. They can't figure out how to, to make their brain relax. But according to some research now um, out of Northwestern University, they found that um, they performed a little uh, research study and concluded that one fine way to guarantee yourself a good night's sleep is to have a purpose in life. People that have a purpose apparently get a better night's sleep than those that uh, don't quite know what their life is all about. How did they measure it? Well, participants were asked to rate their response to such statements as, I feel good when I think of what I've done in the past and what I hope to do in the future. And uh, this is the first study to show having a purpose in life specifically results in fewer sleep disturbances and improved sleep quality over a long period of time. So how cool is that, Jeff? All you've got to do now is... Find your purpose in life. My purpose is solely to get more sleep. <laughs> That's it. I wonder if that ends up falling in on itself. If all of a sudden, if your only purpose is sleep, then does that help you sleep better or do you need more of a purpose? I'm kind of in a dark place because my only purpose is to get more sleep and I can't accomplish that. So I'm a complete failure. Maybe what you ought to do is like is try to find another purpose in life. Maybe it, like serving the world, changing the life of a child, something like that. Maybe that would help. No, no, yeah, yeah, that, that's all good. But I'm just, I want more than six hours of sleep. Oh, so do I. Don't you notice that it's hard to come to work when you're tired and then it's hard to want to have a purpose other than sleep because you're too tired to think about your purpose. And then the cycle continues and then you just want a corn dog for lunch. <laughs> And then you want a nap after your corn dog. Oh, brother, you've just totally – that's my life right there in a nutshell. So there you have it. If you want better sleep, find a purpose. There's a bunch of uh, mindfulness activities and therapies you can go through. You could try to – in fact, they're even finding out it's more powerful than antidepressants. Getting a, lot, getting a goal, a purpose, something that drives you, something that motivates you, something that's bigger than you, for heaven's sakes – It'll get you a good night's rest. We'll take a break. This is hour number one of the program. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Monday to you. You're at it again. Hope you're having a great day as you uh, make your commute back or just, you know, trying to get caught up after the weekend. We've got a great show for you today. Today we're going to be talking about if how to improve your influence with others and why using logic alone may not be cutting it. You might need to actually involve emotional communication as well as just logic. Try all you want. But at some point, uh, we're emotional beings, and today we're going to be talking with an expert and an author about uh, the power of using uh, kind of a mix of more emotional communication and logic uh, to help you uh, create more influence with others. We'll get to that as we as we get into this. Plus, of course, a lot of uh, local inform or not local but national information and and uh, news headlines with Terry South. Uh, also, we're going to have a lot of empty news. In fact, we have our own Shik Shumway live on the scene of a of a crime that um, he he got there early. One of our goals of the show is to be first on the scene, and if we can, you know, in the top five in the facts, he is fast. He's a fast. You got to give him that. Yeah. So he got to the scene of a of I don't know what we want to call it. Like a it's a theft. It's a theft of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, and but it's kind of an ironic theft. Yeah, yeah, and it was all you know. We we've got a great interview with Shik coming up. He, he's he, he's really a talented talented man. Shik Shumway coming up. Also, we'll be talking with uh, not talking with, but talking about the mayor of a town in Kentucky, a small 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 town in Kentucky. The mayor is a dog. I think there are only small towns in Kentucky. Yeah, maybe that, they're that, all small. That that might be, that might be it. Uh, this uh, the 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 town is called Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. By hmm. the way, you always love Rabbit Hash in the morning. Rabbit Hash, who hash? Mm. Hashtag, good stuff. So we'll talk about uh, the the winning mayoral candidate, a dog. Um, also today, by the way, is Don't Step on a Bee Day. <laughs> How many times have you stepped on a bee and you thought, I shouldn't have done that? It's a very common thing. I don't think I've ever stepped on a bee. Have you? Terry has. I stepped on a hornet, but he was pretty much on his way out anyway. So So you were just helping him? Yeah. Did it sting you? No. It was more of, you know, I initiated a chemical attack and I just finished the situation off. Wow. You're like a hit man. Yeah, pretty much. Don't need your hornet's nest on my deck. So do I'll do take we it down. do we need do we need a don't step on a bee day? I mean, it's good advice. Yeah, it is because there's so many bees that are dying; they're dwindling. Yes. Well, and I think some people, if they don't know that there is a don't step on a bee day, they're just going to do it. Yeah. So they need to be told. Right. I plus, you don't need to step on them. It's it's going to make it harder for us to produce fruit. Hmm. And honey, I guess. We but, could also back off on some pesticides. If they ever figure that out, which one it is, because that's think, probably what it is. Is it the pesticides, or is it just so many people out there stepping on them? It's probably pesticides. Yeah, I'm going with that. They pretty much try to stay away from humans. Granted, there's some humans that try to, you know, keep them in their backyard. Yeah. 
Hey, I got a, I got another little bit of advice for anybody getting married. Ooh. Because we're big into like helping people any way we can. Sure. So let's say you're getting married and you're a bride and you mm. can't. You're getting married and you're a bride and you can't. Let's say that. I just did. Uh, so if you're getting married and you're a bride and you can't afford your dress, you know one way to pay for it? Uh, what is that? Uh, what's that service that you can take to social media? People can donate money. What is that called? GoFundMe. GoFundMe, yeah. Go yeah. yeah. You can do a GoFundMe account. Or you could just get a lot of bridesmaids and ask them to pay for your dress. Ooh. We'll talk about one story where that happened. And Seems like a social contract has been violated there. Yeah, totally, totally. And then um, uh, a man charged with breaking into 12 homes that were ter- tented off for termiting. Termite uh, hmm. bombs or whatever they're called. You probably watched a similar show uh-huh. that I saw it on, yeah, too. Yeah, I so. think no. I saw hmm. that idea there, too. wonder what that show was. Hmm. Kind of weird. Uh, it rhymes with Blaking Blad. Yeah. Just interesting how things starring, on TV work. Starring Robert Blake. <laughs> Robert Blake. Break and break and blad. Uh, we got all that straight ahead. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? After three defendants fatally overdosed in a single week last year, it became clear that Buffalo, New York's ordinary drug treatment court was no match for the heroin and painkiller crisis. Now the city is experimenting with the nation's first opioid crisis intervention court, which can get users into treatment within hours of their arrest instead of days, requires them to check in with the judge every day for a month instead of for just one week, and puts them on a strict curfew. Cool. Administering justice takes a backseat to the overreaching goal of simply keeping defendants alive. Where is that? Buffalo, New York. Great job. Funded with a three-year, $300,000 U.S. Justice Department grant, the program began May 1st with the intent on treating 200 people in a year, improving a model that other heroin-racked cities can replicate. Two months in, the organizers are optimistic. As of last week, none of the 80 people who agreed to be part of the program overdosed, though about 10 warrants have been issued for missed appearances in court. Oh, boy. That's but great news, though. That's a you can't just arrest them, arrest right. them for drugs and throw them in, in jail. They're going to overdose and have problems. If you speed up the process and get them help... There you go. You can kind of curb the problem. We'll see if that works. Using our heads. The Newspaper Media Alliance, a new a newspaper trade group that represents over 2,000 newspapers in the U.S., is asking Congress for an antitrust safe harbor against Google and Facebook. David Chavern, the CEO of the president, uh, CEO and president of the alliance, the group will, with support from members like the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, argue that existing media competition laws prevent news organizations from working together to negotiate better deals with major internet platforms, unintentionally enabling Google and Facebook to continue to control the digital advertising ecosystem and information economy. Mm. Basically, there are certain rules, and Google and Facebook get to collect all the money because of these rules. Let's change the rules. That's how you work it. When in doubt, change the rules. Now, you get into the numbers here, and you say, uh, so they keep calling Google and Facebook a duopoly. Okay, right? So yeah. it's a, not a monopoly, but both yeah. of them together. And it says, uh, in the U.S., regulators have largely ignored this issue that they both control so much of the advertising. And it grows to a point where Google and Facebook control over 60% of the advertising in the U.S. digital ad market, over 50% of the global digital ad market. Meanwhile, media companies and ad revenue continue to decline. Nearly 80% of all digital search and ad revenue in the U.S. will go to Google this year, nearly 40% of all digital display ad revenue will go to Facebook. Wow. They control so much of the money, so much of what we see online when it comes to any sort of advertising. It's like Russian oligarchies. 
without Russia or the oligarchy. It is. And, of course, Facebook and Google like the status quo. Absolutely. So we'll see where that goes in court. The threat to good American jobs at Western Michigan University is not immigrants or even robots, but a team of brush-clearing goats. The goat efficient <laughs> landscaping work will raise the ire of labor union, the American Federal Federation of State and County and Municipal Workers, which argued in a formal grievance that the goats are stealing union worker jobs. <laughs> the university says the goats are the most cost effective and sustainable way to clear the brush, and as for how many humans the goats can realistically replace, the Washington Post calculates a single worker equipped with a tractor can clear as much brush as 3,600 goats in one month of work. With just 20 goats munching at Western Michigan, the union is fighting for a fraction of that job. How do you find a, uh, a unionized goat team? Well, they're not unionized. I know, but how do you find one? If you want to go union goat, then... Union goat. You just, you just search union goat. <laughs> Those goat unions are ruthless. Oh. I hear they have ties to the goat mafia. Could be. Mm. Scary. And an update from a story we had last week. What? We had the guy that... Put the alarm clock in the wall. Oh, yeah. How'd to, that go? To test. He wanted to get it down to a certain place so he could run a cable. I think he was putting his cable for yeah. his TV and wanted to run it through the so wall. So he had the alarm so he could hear it, I so guess. So he, he wanted the alarm down low enough and he'd hear it and that's where it was supposed to go. Right. Which seemed like there's, like there's other 15 ways. other ways right. to do that, but he did it with that. The couple near Pittsburgh finally retrieved the alarm clock that had been stuck inside their wall for more than a decade. Sylvia and Jerry Lynn, who heard the alarm buzz at the same time every evening for 13 years, finally had the clock removed after their story gained national attention. Keith Anderdine and Michael Muccelli of low-cost heating and air came and grabbed the clock out of the wall for the couples. They just they, just they came take in the like, camera down with we'll the help scope you and, and pull it yeah, out. Pulled it out. It says Lynn accidentally dropped the clock down the air vent back in 2004. Um, the couple expected the clock to die after a few months, but the now this is a detail we didn't have before. What? What's the brand of battery that lasted Yeah, what well, ever ready? Blurasil Rayovac. Oh, oh rhymes with Blayovac. I, I just bought some of those. There you Ooh. go. Well, it means the, ba- great. the battery that means runs forever. Battery lasts yeah. forever. And they said the ba- it didn't it didn't have like all that acid that happens if a battery sits in a, what a, a device great forever. Battery. So a power to, it went on for well, how is that? That's like at least a decade. That's decade, great. thirteen, fourteen years. So it's See? a good battery. They got it out of their wall. Everything can move Everybody's on. Everybody's happy, and nobody died. Good news. It's always good news, and the goat union. The goat unions up in. There is no goat union. It's the, the federal it's the, yeah. municipal city worker union. Yeah. They're up in arms over the goats. I know. It's tough. But deal with it. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's called progress, people. Goats. That's right. Hey, speaking of progress, a uh, bride asks her bridesmaids to pay for her wedding dress, which is just nuts. At some point, like who wants to be in – who wants to be a bridesmaid if you got to – Fork out money. Now, it all uh, goes – because it's expensive, right? To get married, a wedding dress can be fairly expensive. Right. And one Australian bridesmaid was asked to to be – to help her friend pay for her dress. Oh, you, that's that's considerate. You're not just a bridesmaid. You're now, you know, a financier. Hmm. Anyway, the bridesmaid uh, called it – named Haley, I guess – said she was overjoyed at being asked to join her friend Caroline's bridal party. However, her feelings of excitement soon grew to utter despair after her friend turned into bridezilla. 
The bride-to-be began to obsess over every little detail from buttonholes for the groomsmen to table decorations. Haley was shocked when Caroline asked her bridesmaids to go dress shopping three weekends in a row. This, like, turned into, like, a full-time job. Wow. The bride eventually uh, settled on a set of $200 bridesmaid dresses, but opted for a mega expensive one for herself, costing $10,500. Wow. Man. I mean, I guess if you're going to have your bridesmaids pitch in, you probably need a lot of bridesmaids. But they're already buying their dresses. Right. Seems a bit much for a dress you're going to wear once. Yeah, totally. Instead of finding a cheaper alternative, Caroline asked her bridesmaids to pitch in for her dress. It's her dream dress, for heaven's sakes. That night, Haley received an email from Caroline. The subject line was, Bridesmaid dress contribution. And it made me break into a cold sweat. The bride asked if the bridesmaids could pitch in around $150 each towards her dream dress. Hmm. Do guys have dream tuxes? No. Hmm. The thing is, she's probably also expecting a gift from them. Oh, sure. Well, and a weekend, and then you got to pay for your trip wherever they're going, like for the big event. It's a lot of work. This seven is... bridesmaids she had. Oh, my goodness. For seven brides? Seven brides. And then there were some brothers that were involved, so, yeah. some, seven of them somewhere. This is like waiting and waiting and hoping that somebody will just invite you into their home and have you as their guest. And then the Johnsons finally get around to inviting you into their home. And you get there, and it's an MLM <laughs> meeting. And if you can get three people under you who can get three people under them and they will buy a dress, you can make $150 per head. If you get seven people, you're making a lot of money. And then it's, yeah, bridal gowns for everybody. But no wedding. You find out there's no wedding. No wedding. Nothing could be worse than that, except something could be. How about an Albuquerque TV truck that was stolen while Cruz worked on a crime story? Crazy. Our own Shik Shumway is on the scene in Albuquerque to uh, report live on the scene. Shik, are you there? Thanks, Matt. While a television news crew was gathering footage for a story about a crime in the Albuquerque downtown area, a thief drove off in the station's SUV. KOB News Director Michelle Donaldson says the vehicle was recovered within a half hour without police assistance by following the GPS tracking device that was on board. She says the thief had fled up. Hey. Palakiko, did, did, did you leave the keys in the car? Palakiko! Oh, boy. Shick? We lost him there. Uh, Shick. Wow. So wait a minute. I'm Palakiko super must confused. confused. So he was reporting on the Albuquerque truck where they, the... the Criminal stole the TV truck. So, and then somebody apparently stole his truck. So, there's an area where there's a lot of theft. Yeah. A TV station goes to do a story on it. Their truck gets stolen. Right. We send our reporter, Shik Shumway, to cover that in our, in our Volkswagen bus. And it kind of sounds like that got stolen. And it sounds like he was blaming Palakiko. Like Palakiko left the keys in it. It sounds like something he would do. Who, Palakiko yes, or Shumway? Palakiko. Yeah. But it sound, this sounds like something that would happen to Shik Shumway. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, okay, first on the scene, uh, ninth on security and safety and securing the vehicle while on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I, I think we need to tell him it's coming out of his budget. 
Oh, yeah. He well, can't blame Palakiko's a student. No. Right. And Palakiko, that's the third car Palakiko's had stolen. So what are you going to do? I think I'm sensing a pattern here. I know. Palakiko totally. also likes to collect books. He collects books and he tries <laughs> to sell them on eBay. He also collects cars and he sells them on cars. Cars.com. Cars.com. Oh, well. Well, try it again. I mean, it's good to have him back. I thought, I don't know. I thought we lost him for a while. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why using logic alone to persuade others will fail most of the time. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, no matter your education, your job, or your role in the community, you need to be able to persuade and influence people, right? Those that uh, do it really well do so in a way that maintains and even builds solid relationships. These are vital not only to help us succeed in our work lives, but in our personal lives as well. And in his new book, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World, James Sudikow gives us some advice on how to succeed in our jobs and our lives. James, we're honored to have you. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. This is uh, it's a it's an interesting topic. One of the proposals you make is at some point um, you got to if you want to influence people, you're you're going to have to use more than just logic to do so. Right? I mean, we're emotional beings. We need to somehow touch on the emotional side. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It's interesting. I um I do a lot of work with a lot of different companies and 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 people at lots of different levels around, you know, how do you actually get your point across in a way that's going to resonate? And and one of the questions that I always ask people when I start is I say, "How many of you guys have ever gone into a presentation where you you have probably the tightest logical argument in the world like there's no holes in it. It's airtight." And you still walked out of there getting rejected, and almost everybody raises their hand every time. Right. And it's because there's this other stuff going on, right? There's this emotional aspect as to how we make decisions. And there's some really interesting research out there about how we as humans make decisions um, beyond the logic. Uh, so, so for me, it's really kind of not to say that we throw logic out the window, but we have to recognize that we are emotional beings and we need to combine the two. Because to to do it, and I think everyone's probably experienced somebody that was just being way too logical, or even some people that are too emotional. Is it that we need to balance the two, or do we need to favor more of the emotion uh, and less of the logic? What, what what do you think the balance looks like? Yeah, I know it's a great question. You know, it's interesting. That depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of debate about this actually um, in the research. There are some cognitive psychologists that say, you know, throw logic out the window. It's all about emotion. There are others that are kind of still saying, no, you can't abandon logic. For me, in my practical experience in the business world, what I have found is you have to use both, right? But I often find that you've got to use the emotion to unlock somebody's ability to actually hear the logic. And like, for example, you know, I had a client I was working with um, years ago, and we had a really, really good logical, um, logical argument for why we needed to do something that we needed to do. And everybody was supporting it except for this one, this one leader. Um, and what I found later was that her reason for not supporting it wasn't that she didn't understand the logic. She actually fully understood and supported the logic. 
but she couldn't get herself to do it because there was an emotional aspect of the fact that her business unit was in a kind of a smaller uh, geographical area. Everybody knew each other. She had brought in all of the people and they were going to have to kind of move. So there was this emotional relationship factor that she had with all of the people that were going to have to get, get moved to a different business unit as a result of what we were doing. Hmm. And that was what was stopping her from seeing the logic. So once I unlocked that, then we were able to talk about the logical element of it, and, and she responded very well to that. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I always kind of I always talk about uh, smoke and fire, and a lot of times we end up talking about the smoke, you know, the things that irritate us, and we try to get people to move on certain topics. But until you go put out the fire and actually get down to that hot emotional issue. You're going to just always be dealing with with the the fire. So how do you how do yeah. you get in and release the emotional side? Is it is that they just need to they need to be able to express it, or is that they need to sense that you actually get it and care about it? Yeah, for for me it's the latter. I mean, I think it's both, but for me it's actually the investment of time in the relationship, right? I mean, and I found that most really good. If you build a really strong relationship that allows for you and the other person to have a conversation about something that may, they may feel vulnerable about, which is fear or concern or those kind of emotional aspects that aren't going to show up in a, uh, in a boardroom meeting because nobody wants to show that vulnerability in there, if you're able to kind of do that where you kind of talk to them and understand and, they, and listen and that they get that you get it, then it, you, you kind of move from a different point to talk about how you're going to move forward. And it's worked almost every time to do that. And obviously you have to do it in a genuine way. You can't do it in some sort of manipulative, disingenuous way. But if you really invest in the relationship, then I think you open up yourself to a conversation or a set of conversations that you wouldn't normally have that allows for all of that, to your point, the fire stuff to kind of come to the surface and be talked about. Mm. And it's, yeah, you make a great point that it's, it can't be faked, right? I mean, they either trust you with their vulnerable, uh, you know, emotional truth, or they don't. And um, you'll know, I guess, if if you see progress being made. If if they're stagnant and they're not progressing and doing, you know, what they should be doing or doing what you need them to do, there's probably a deeper issue. Yeah. No, there actually is, I and mean, it's funny that you talk about the deeper issues. One of the things that I always try to do myself and I do some coaching for leaders as well. And I try to ask them to do it is you got to understand people's pressure points. Um, what is, what, where are they getting pressure that's either helping them go a direction or making them go a different direction than you want them to go. And those pressure points are very, they're almost always not logically driven. And what I mean by that, if someone is kind of really like putting a stake in the ground or they're, they're trying to drive something in a totally different direction than you want them to go, I've always been able to unlock that by saying, where are they getting their pressure? And oftentimes it's stuff like, you know, am I doing a good job in my job? Am I, am I driving things, adding value? Or maybe I believe that I'm not adding value, so I really have to do a different way here. Or do I have a constituent group that I really want to be supporting me and therefore they are not liking this direction, so I can't let them down? Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on. Yeah. And if you understand people's pressure points, which, as I said, are, are most of the time emotionally driven, then you have a conversation about those things and you figure out how do we help them alleviate their pressure point. And once that's been alleviated, I mean, it opens things up really, really easily to be able to move things forward. But if you don't hit the pressure point, then you never really get there. You can't get past a certain level of the conversation. You well, and it's funny. I can almost hear an executive saying, "Well, they, you know, 
this stop all this fluffy stuff. They're paid to work. Just get to work. But the reality is that's the job of the leader, right? Is to is to get people to work. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, um, for me, and it goes back to the relationship point, it may be perceived as kind of this fluffy relationship thing, but relationships and the strength of the relationship allows people to have trust. And once people have trust, they're willing to kind of have conversations that they wouldn't be willing to have, which allows for you to kind of figure out how to move things forward in a much more effective way. You probably are aware there's a whole bunch of research out there on high-performing teams. And those teams that are highest performing have this level of trust that they can have these kind of conversations and they do it in a way that's open and upfront versus feeling like I'm not allowed to show that emotional vulnerability. And that stops a lot of things from moving forward in an effective way. Man, it's so true. And it really, I think, shows the complexity. I mean, these are human beings, right? And the human beings are what make up teams and relationships are what make up teams and you're not going to get high performance without somehow uh, dealing with the people and and their real emotional issues. Is Do you sense – I mean, is this something we do well in corporate America? <laughs> um, I, I think some do it well. I mean, I think there are some organizations that have really kind of embraced this notion of, like, let's build people's self-awareness. Let's build people's uh, ability to kind of build relationships. There are some cultures that are great at it. Um, and then there are some that, you know, some of the more hardline cultures who, who, who sometimes do really, really well that, that they don't. Um, so, you know, I think it's an evolving thing in the business world. And, and to your point earlier about people saying, ah, you know, is this the fluffy stuff? You know, the reality is I think more and more people are finding that over the long haul, those organizations that are really good at building relationships um, are the ones where people can actually move things forward most effectively. So it, 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 I think it's evolving. I'm not sure it's. Um, yeah. I'm not sure it's everywhere yet. But then you hear and see stories in the news about, you know, companies that you know pull people off of airplanes and all the airline problems we're having and mistrust and the, we hear about all of the numbers of people that are disengaged at work. I mean, it costs a lot of money to keep people working, and it costs even more money if they're not working effectively and as a team. So I guess in the end, this is something for companies that are it's worth investing in. Yeah, and then you, you hit it right on the head. I mean, one of the things that my consulting practice focuses on is, is this talent issue. I mean, and you just hit it, is, you know, the people that we have there are, without a doubt, are the biggest asset that any organization has. You know, I always tell people that strategy is kind of a short-term differentiator, but your people are a long-term differentiator because at the end of it all, your people are the ones that come up with your strategy or your products or whatever it is that's differentiating you in the market. And so whatever we can do to help that group work more effectively together um, is really, really important. And it's very costly, like you said, to have to kind of make changes midstream And there's all sorts of collateral damage associated with that beyond the money um, in terms of knowledge loss, um, continuity of work. So the more we can do to kind of bring people to have a better understanding of how to work closely together and build that trust, the the better the organizations will do. How do we – I mean, I know that you can teach these kind of skills to people. I do that in my profession as well. And so if we need to get in and understand the pressure point, how do you actually – teach it? And and what would you teach specifically employees to do to get down and get to understand the real pressure point and release the pressure point? 
Yeah, so it's a really good question, and I actually have a couple of people that I'm coaching right now where we're talking about doing this, and I think the first thing I always ask them to do is to kind of think outside of kind of where they're trying to get their thing moving forward. So take yourself out of that for a second. So if I have topic X that I'm trying to influence this leader to do, and I'm not getting any movement on it, forget about the, the, the topic for a second and think about what is it that might be driving their behavior? So kind of what, what do you think's going on? What else do you know? Who else do you know in terms of this working with this person? I think that kind of what I would call kind of analysis of their situation, which is very difficult for a lot of us to do because we're so focused on what we want to do that sometimes it's hard for us even to think for a second that really what we need to be thinking about is the other person and what's mm. going on in their world. And so just getting people to mentally flip the switch to say, okay, it's not about me right now, it's about them, and let's understand what else is going on there, that's usually the first step that I try to get people to do. Then what I try to do is say, okay, now that you know more about what's going on with them, think about the thing you're trying to influence them to do. Does it help them or does it hurt them in terms of what else is going on around? And now you're going to start to have more information about like what's really happening and how you might want to plan to solve for that. Because, again, you can, no matter how accurate you are, and even if you need them to do something that's good for them, you still have to get them to do it. It's still on their yeah. terms. Right? So spending yeah. more time on them at, in the beginning is going to probably make this more efficient, make this happen faster. Yeah, and it's really hard for people to do that, right? Because yeah. when none of us are really taught to do that. We're taught to think about our thing. And how do we want to sell, quote unquote, sell people to do it, right? In the business world, we're always talking about, you know, how do we sell it? How do we, how do we socialize this to, to get done? But we're not really thinking about why might people not want to do this? Yeah. And let's understand their perspective so that we can figure out how to, quote unquote, sell it better. Does, do you see, is this different in a family setting than a corporate setting? I mean, in a corporate setting, at least you've got the leverage of, you know, you you've if you're the boss, you own their job, you could fire them. But what about getting your your kids motivated to do what they need to do? <laughs> I could take some advice on that one. No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, my wife is uh, is really funny. So we have kind of a unique family situation. We have a two month old, a two year old. And then my wife and I are legal guardians for for her younger brother and sister who are 16 and 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have this really dynamic thing where we've got almost every age group represented except for tweeners, and we're, we're happy not to have one of those in there. <laughs> right now, too much, yeah. Too much going on. But, but what I've learned is, um, you know, we've had the benefit of kind of raising two older kids, and now we we got our two biological children that are our own. And, uh, you know, I've found that this relationship thing and the trust thing is really important as well. Like, I, I don't... I don't feel that there's that much of a difference. This right. kind of notion of allowing for vulnerability, and even as a quote-unquote parent, so we're, we're parental figures to the 16- and 20-year-old. We're not their mother and father. But um, this notion of kind of showing our own vulnerability and really kind of allowing for an open conversation, especially with, like, teenage kids, um, I think has been really, really valuable. So I'm not an expert on it, but yeah. I can honestly say it seems to work there, too. You just got to tread a little bit differently, obviously, because you're dealing with kids. Yeah. No, and I think that's great advice, too, that in the end, um, we, we mean, we'd love to probably be able to do this without any relationship or without any emotion. But in in the end, it is the relationship and the emotion that makes life worth working for. It makes families what they are, and it makes 
Um, so it's almost like the mountain you're not going to get around. If you want to have power with people, you got to understand the person. Yeah. At any yeah, level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's that's actually just that's critical advice. James, let's take a break, come back, and then I want to get into the book, why using uh, – I mean the book – I got to get the book title right uh, – Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit. You got some great insights in just little fixes that we can make in our workplace that uh, you know that would help us and help the corporate world be a lot uh, easier for all of us. Stick with us with us more with James Sudikow. You can go to his website, jamessudikow.com. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about, uh, I mean, a bunch of things. But first and foremost, the book "Picking the Low Hanging Fruit" and other stupid stuff we say the, in the corporate world. It's important we we pay attention to our words. We've been speaking with the author of the book, James Sudikow, and uh, James has James has been talking about an article that he wrote in Inc. Magazine: Why Using Logic Alone to Persuade Others Will Fail Most of the Time. You can get more information on his website, jamessudikow.com. And uh, look for the book, uh, again, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit. James, thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What, uh, in your book, talk about uh, why you wrote the book about picking low-hanging fruit. Is it, Do we have a problem with how we use language, how we try to influence people in our workforce? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I started, uh, I started my, my career 20 years ago in the consulting world, and and I remember vividly my first few weeks there, I, you know, I was going through orientation and I was learning all the different client work we were doing. And, and there were so many expressions that were being thrown around, like these idiosyncrasies of the business world that I just had no idea what they meant. Um, and, and over time, it became kind of comical to me to say, God, why do we talk this way? Why do we use all these weird expressions? Like, why can't we just talk in normal English? Um, and to your point, like part of the reason that I wrote the book was one, just to, you know, make fun of us a little bit because we, we do sound ridiculous when we, when we say some of the things that we say, but equally importantly, I think the the nugget of it at the end of the book is to say, you know, why do we have to keep talking this way? Because when you think about it at the end of it all, if we just speak like normal people, I think we have a better chance of actually getting the things done that we want to get done and communicate and influence better versus kind of having this weird language that we use that, that quite honestly, what I've learned is a lot of people don't know what a lot of these terms mean. And so they, they have this belief that they have to know what they mean because everybody else seems to know what they mean or is better at faking it than they are. That's so you true. have this weird dynamic going on where people don't necessarily know what's being said or they think it's dumb too, but we're all using the language anyway. So I'm just kind of making a, a case to stop doing it talk like normal people, and maybe that'll help a little bit. Well, and I guess, too, don't make the assumption that everyone in the room talks like you or knows all the jargon. Like An example of the jargon is some of the favorite ones you said were like, open the kimono. Yeah. <laughs> we just got to open the kimono. We got to be – or, you know, that certain things are baked into the project. Um, and so then as a newbie, you, I guess, spend all this time trying to figure out what the heck he means. 
Yeah, I, I I actually remember vividly a meeting where one one of the the project leaders was kicking off a project, and they went through this like speech. And it wasn't really a speech, but it was just kind of a short opening statement about what we needed to do. And I didn't understand any of it. I was like, <laughs> "What the heck? <laughs> what am I supposed to do?" But at the same time, I was kind of new to the organization, so I certainly wasn't going to let anybody know that I didn't know what was meant. And I kind of was like nodding my head like everybody else, and I had no clue what was going on. <sighs> and, and, and what was interesting is I wrote this book, and, and I talked to uh, a couple of people that were at a director level. And one of them kind of jokingly reached out to me and said, oh, you know what? I have not known what that term meant for like 15 years. I'm so glad that you finally told me what it means. <laughs> so it's not just the new people like I was that don't know what this stuff means. Again, it's just a case to say, why complicate it? It's already hard enough to get stuff done in a really effective way in the business world. Let's just simplify it and, you know, not have all these weird expressions. And let's just talk, you know, talk like normal people. And then are we too afraid? I mean, that's another thing. Do you have a culture where you can have somebody, you know, ask, raise their hand and, and say something like, so what is thoughtware? Or what is a right. paradigm shift? Can you clarify that with me? Because a lot of times you don't feel safe questioning. No, that's right. And, and it's all levels that don't feel safe, right? Obviously, a junior person doesn't feel safe because they don't have enough experience to know if they're supposed to know what that stuff means or not. And then a senior person obviously doesn't feel safe either sometimes because they've been doing this for a long time, so there's an expectation that they know what that language means. Although I have a really good case where there was a VP that we were working with. I, I give her so much credit. She had the guts to kind of stay in a meeting. What does this expression mean? You guys are throwing it around, and I have no idea what it means. Can you please tell me what it means? And everybody kind of laughed, and that was actually nice that she had the guts to kind of just say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's so true. And, I mean, I guess part of it is – it's cultural, right? It's it's how we – I guess we – the jargon distinguishes the culture except in order to maintain a cross-cultural environment, like you're saying, we probably ought to just say what we mean. Yeah, I know, and that's a really, really good point. I And this is a little bit of a, of a peripheral case to this whole thing, but I, I was talking to somebody um, in Europe um, not that long ago for a, for a client that I have that's, that's global and they have some European representation out there and – and she was literally telling me, she said, you know, the, 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 the people in the U.S., they're always using these football analogies. And it's kind of related to this. And she's like, we don't know what the heck they're talking about because that's not what we play. Right? Yeah. I mean, we play football as in soccer. And so they're like, we, we, we think, you know, we pay attention and we nod along and we, we, yeah, we say, yeah, but we don't really know what point they're trying to make. <laughs> we don't know the game. Fourth quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. Yeah. What does that mean? First and ten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that true? Does it, and then I guess it becomes a distraction. It becomes, what does it do? What's the harm? Yeah, so I think the challenge is it, it makes things take longer, right? So when we think about the business world, everybody's always trying to get a lot of really good things done, and they're trying to be as efficient as possible, and they're trying to get it done quick because there's a lot of pressure these days, especially with all the technology, to be faster and faster. I think what this does is it just kind of slows things down. It may not be incredibly measurable, but, I mean, it does just create unnecessary distraction and it creates unnecessary learning curves for people. We should be focusing the learning curve on the stuff that they should be doing for their job or the product or the service or whatever it is that the company does. Let's eliminate any sort of unnecessary distractions or learning curves that don't really actually have anything to do with the work that we're trying to do. It's so true. And even how many times have you spent so many uh, hours learning just systems or 
you know, learning how to turn your um, your receipts in for your trip that you took for the company, and you spend so much time on process and just admin information that you you're not even working on what you're supposed to be working on. Oh, I had true. You know, one of these days, I'd love to do kind of a, just a fun study on how much time people spend on the kind of things we're talking about versus their job. And I don't mean as a way of saying, hey, that person isn't working hard. But I think there's going to be there will be some really interesting things that come out of that around, like, how much peripheral time are we spending on all the things that are distractions to the real job that we were hired to do? And it's, it's got to be a lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so in a way, when you kind of merge your book, um, picking the low-hanging fruit, and your article in Inc. Magazine on why using logic alone won't always work, a lot of what this is about is it's almost like we just need to rethink how we are doing, how we're working with others. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's some interesting research out there on influence that's related to this notion of, like, the dumb expressions that I wrote about in the book, and it's related to influence as well. It's this, con- this notion of common ground, and you've probably read about this before, but people are much more likely to be influenced by you when they perceive that they have common ground with you, when they perceive that they have something in, in common with you. And that actually goes a really long way to help people want to kind of move along a path. And the reason that I mentioned that related to the, the book is, you know, there's a lot of people that don't talk about paradigm shifts and they don't talk about baking people into the process and they don't talk about all those weird things. But a lot of leaders kind of do that. They talk in that language. And if we're trying to establish common ground with employees or people at a staff level, the way not to do it is to use all of these crazy expressions where they're like, well, I don't talk like that. So yeah. I don't have a lot in common with that leader. There's a great example. when I, The last company I worked for before I launched my consulting practice that had a chief operating officer who was, who was awesome at this, he was a really, really smart guy. Um, but he would literally get up there at the uh, the town hall meetings, which were broadcast around the world, and he would say things like, you know what, guys, our job is to make really good stuff and to sell it re- really well, and if we have problems, to fix it. And everybody loved him. Because Simple. They're like, this is a guy that talks the way we talk. He's not throwing a That's bunch so of like true. weird things at us. And that established common ground, and everybody loved the guy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And again, if you like you were saying earlier, if you spend some time listening to what they're going through, trying to get down to kind of their pressure points, you'll open up. They'll give you the language you can use. Then you just use their language. Right. So you don't even need yeah. to make up the language. You And you don't even need to just be the average Joe that can just speak average. You need to also just listen to what words they're using and then go with what they're saying. That's, that's exactly right. And one of the other things that I've written about on Inc. is this notion of when you're trying to talk to somebody, when you're trying to influence somebody, or, or whether you're just trying to have a conversation, you need to speak the language they speak. And I don't necessarily mean like French or Spanish. Of course, you need to do that on a global perspective. But I mean, if you're talking to a finance person, you should talk finance. Yeah. And when you're talking to an HR person, you should talk HR. And when you're talking to an IT person, you should try to talk IT, although that's hard for most of us. But you should try to do it, yeah. right? Um, it's that notion of speaking in the language of the other person, not speaking in the language that you feel most comfortable with. And it goes back to that same point of the pressure point. You've got to take yourself out of yourself for a second and think about the other person. It just makes things go so much better. 
Such great advice. James, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Wonderful work there. The book is Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World. You can find out more information about James and his work and uh, his consulting and and coaching as well by going to jamesudacow.com. jamesudacow.com. We'll take a break, my friends. Continuing the journey to help you be the best you can be, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know, as we were just speaking with uh, our guest, James Sudikow, about uh, leadership, you know, some towns just have natural leaders. When you drive into Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, you thrust, you're thrust back in time. Porches are still uh, hangouts for young guys to talk about uh, the girls, and the general store is one-stop shop, uh, one-stop shop for anything you need. Every town, no matter how small, needs a leader, however. And after a rough election... Nice. Thanks. The spot on the banks of the Ohio River has uh, has now got a brand new leader. She's very outgoing, Bobby Kaiser says. She has the best smile I've ever seen, Jordy Bamforth said. There's always an inappropriate licking going on, Kate Kaiser said again. Uh, you might be saying, wait, 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 you know what, this is, a, this is their mayor? Yeah, we're all talking about a pit bull. The treat-loving, woods-exploring good girl is named Brynneth Paltrow. Pa- no, Paltrow. And uh, she's the new mayor of Rabbit Hash. Yes, you got it right. Rabbit Hash has elected a dog to be the leader of their cute little community. The competition was stiff, though. There was a cat, a chicken, a donkey, and a little boy. Now, the donkey must have been, what, was that a Republican or a Democrat? I can never remember. They're Democrats, yeah. Okay. All donkeys are Democrats. Um well, this is not the year for Democrats. No, it's not. So. It's not the year for Democrats. Apparently, um, believe it or not, the pooch is the fourth dog mayor to be unleashed on the city. It all started in the late 1990s as a fundraiser uh, for Rabbit Hash's Historical Society. We charge you a dollar for your vote, and you're, you can vote as often as you want. The town is so small, it doesn't need a real mayor. Usually the money from the election goes toward the town improvements. All pundits want to know, will Brynneth Paltrow return the, to the campaign trail again next year? That We'll see. The dog has not made any decisions and uh, is still in the doghouse. So congratulations to Gwyneth Paltrow, cute little dog and mayor of Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, we'll be back. Stick with us, helping you create a better life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Monday to you. We know you're so excited to be back at it again. But at least this way you don't have to sweat at home. You can sweat at work. You can just go to work and sweat it. Right. Boy, some of those people you got to respect it, uh, in 110 degree weather when oh. you're out working construction. Can you imagine? Saw them out yesterday. Honestly, it would be just demoralizing. My wife's complaining about how hot it is, and I go, "But they're working outside." Yeah. She goes, "Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, right. Just turn your air conditioning up." Yeah, she goes from air conditioning to air conditioning to air conditioning, and these guys are out there. All day long. Let me tell you how blessed my children are. We went to a home yesterday that has a swamp, a swamp cooler. 
Oof. Yeah. Oof. And um, they times. they they loved it. They had never <laughs> like. Why? Are you kidding? They had never seen a swamp cooler because they have central air. We sure. have central air, and that's what they're used to. So they all sat under the swamp cooler, and it has such a really strong fan. Well, yeah. That. They're like, this is awesome. In that one four-foot section one, of the house. Yeah, in that one hallway <laughs> where it's blowing. And they were in it, they were enamored. I've never seen them more excited about something. Wow. They're like, Dad, why don't hmm. we have this? And I'm like, well, we have central air, and so ours just blows from every vent. Yeah. And without all the humidity. We're right. cool all over. We're cool all over. And they're like, this just feels better. And I think, oh, you need to go back to the 70s with me. Yeah. That'd be a great band name, by the way. Cool All Over. Cool All Over. Yeah. So it's Swamp Cooler. Oh, yeah. That's when I. That's one of my rites of passage when I turned into a man is when my mom said, I want you to go up onto the roof and um, I want you to take the Swamp Cooler down and take the – what were they called? The the matting, the mm-hmm. mats that are inside, and the, the cooler, the, the swamp cooler pads, pads, yeah, and yeah, yeah. trade out the pads. Right yeah. then, I'm like, I used to sell those, Whoa! and I had to drag those pads up the ladder. I was such a man. Seriously, I was six <laughs> years old. Yeah. No, I was probably like 14. Right. It was cool. Yeah. Whenever your parents tell you get on the roof, you're like, what? For sure, I'll do it. Whatever Let's you need it. me to do, mom, I'll get on the roof right now. <laughs> do you ever see wallpaper in anyone's home anymore? No. I haven't seen wallpaper on a wall for a very long time. It's not a good time to be in the wallpaper business. Does anybody wallpaper anymore? Anywhere? There was a warehouse at one point Okay, that sold wallpaper. Oh, yeah. There was a wallpaper warehouse. Great yeah. uh, theme music as well. Right. We'll get, uh, we'll get into more wallpaper and decorating themes coming Tips. up. Tips, if you will. <laughs> also, uh, we'll be speaking with an expert uh, talking about why kindergartners need more playtime. These young kids, they we need to make sure they have more playtime and maybe less rigid schedules, mm. a little more fun time, because we're we're breaking them. We're breaking our youngsters. Can we get that too? Well, actually, no, because you're not a kindergartner. So, and I'd like the nap time. Can you? Oh, can we get that too? I love nap time. I we're, take mine every day. Juice kinda, boxes. We're kind of going through that with my kid this summer. As we're he trying goes to, to first grade. We're trying. He? Yeah, we're trying to get him to read. You know, work on his handwriting so yeah. that somebody beside – well, he can't even read it, but somebody yeah. can read it. And then he's got to go play because he wants to just stay inside and watch the iPad. So he has to earn the iPad yeah. by going outside and playing, except it's 105 degrees. We made a new deal with our children that their phones are turned in every night now. They're, they were always kind of turned in. But then in the morning, they just pick them up and start looking at their phones. But now our rule is – you don't get your phone until all of your jobs are done. Huh. Mm. So, Do you have like a basket? How do you collect them? Well, um, we haven't figured the collection out yet. Oh. I, I left, so my wife was supposed to. Here's a train so pit I don't know what we did. So wait, you you didn't instigate this yet? or No, we talked it, about it in the car, and then I go to bed at 9 o'clock, and my family goes to bed about midnight. So I'm not sure what my wife did. She probably took the kids aside and said, yeah, don't, don't listen to him. This, was, this idea was just a crackpot idea. No, you know, that's probably very accurate. In fact, I'm going to go check because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that is what – because one of my kids said, hey, crackpot, have a good day at work. Wow, that's rude. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like I don't know where you got that. Like, yeah. where'd you start That on top me? of the whole swamp cooler thing. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> What's happening in your house? I can't stand it. Um, okay. All uh, – we'll be talking about kindergartners and playtime. 
Plus, we also have got some wonderful headlines, uh, empty news, we call it, Matt Townsend News, news you didn't even know you needed to know. Plus, um, we'll get to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show today. I'm going to be asking about the Home Run Derby, who they think will be winning the Home oh, yeah. Run Derby, because without Poppy in it, mm-hmm. and I mean, who's who's left? Are there any really big hitters anymore? Right. Well, as I told you, the two uh, players with the most number of home runs are both rookies. They're rookies, and mm-hmm. are they both Dodgers? No, one of them One's is, a Dodger. and he's 21 years old. A 20, I know, and tiny, he was rookie of the, isn't he running in the running for rookie of the year? I'm sure he will be. Crazy. I mean, what were you doing at 21? I was in Russia. Yeah, see? Back to Trump. It's always back to Trump with him. I know. You can't stay focused. Anyway, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? If your dream in life is to be a guardian of the galaxy, and yes it is, that may be an option sooner than you may think. I can't wait for this to work. Representatives in the House Armed Services Strategic Forces Subcommittee are considering legislation to create a new branch of the U.S. military called the Space Corps. Space Corps! (laughs) To organize space missions by 2019, the proposal would make the Space Corps an independent branch under the the Air Force, much like their relation to the Marine Corps to the Navy. Okay. Right, so there's your organizational structure. But the Air Force is the proposal's chief critic, as senior Air Force officials have argued that there is no current need to change from the present functionality of the existence of what's called the Air Force Space Command. Really? I think mean, you could take Air Force Space Command and Space Corps and come up with a really cool toy line. I used to do work with the Air Force Space Command. Uh-huh. It's, it's, a, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of the many commands underneath the Air Force. So the Air Force seems to think space is not yet fully mature warfighting domain in its own right and does not need a separate co-equal service. There you go. Space Corps, not as good a band name as uh, Swamp Cooler. No, not, not at all. Yeah. But there's sort of like comic books, video games, movies. You can mm-hmm. do a whole line of things here, but Air Force is in the way. Right. It's the Air Force. It's always the Air Force. Production of Tesla's first car aimed at a broader market. The Model 3 is underway. CEO Elon Musk said on Twitter Saturday that the first production Model 3 was built and going through the final checkout. Musk then shared photos of the first car on Twitter and Instagram. He said last week the production of the Model 3, Tesla's least expensive all-electric sedan, would start ahead of schedule because the car had cleared regulatory hurdles two weeks early. Production growth would be exponentially ramping up from 100 cars in August to roughly 5 5,000 sedans a week by the end of the year. It's a good-looking car. The car starts about $35,000, while Tesla's flagship model S starts at 69000 Yeah. We can go way up from there oh, with yeah. add-ons. The first 30 buyers are scheduled to get their Model 3 cars at an event July 28th. I believe the first owner, the owner of the Model 3 one, is Elon Musk. Of course. Someone gifted it to him. What a nice It's always guy. the rich guys that get the deals. Yeah. Come on! Did you call the sheriff's? An ever-listening smart home gadget recorded the sus- suspect of a domestic assault saying those words <laughs> while the house si- house sitting with his girlfriend and her daughter. It took them quite literally. ABC News reports that the device, the type, was not specified. There are stories out there saying it may be this one product, but it's not that product. Nobody not sure wants what it to is. have it attached to their product? I don't know. The ABC News report has uh, it says that the device contacted local authorities of an Albuquerque, New Mexico suburb during an altercation between Eduardo Barros and his girlfriend. 
A county sheriff spokesperson said Barros reportedly threatened his girlfriend with a gun during the dispute. The device mistook Barros' question for a command and alerted authorities. That's great. They were able to safely remove the girlfriend and daughter from the home, and after an hour-long standoff, uh, he was uh, taken into custody. But he said, did you call the sheriffs? And the device Okay, they called the sheriffs. We will call the sheriffs. I didn't call the sheriffs, but I shot the sheriffs. I shot the sheriff. I think it was singular. Yeah. Oh, not plural. So, uh, but then the question comes, it's always listening. So what is it hearing as you're just talking around your house? I mean... These devices are just uh, sitting there on the tabletop. That's amazing, though, that it's that attentive. Right. I mean... And, it, and by the way, it won't fall into, like, codependency and other issues that might happen in domestic violence. It would just immediately call the sheriff. Could Sorry, you imagine if your kids had that type of hearing? Oh, yeah. Like, could you guys go clean your room? And hey. they heard you the first yeah. time. Hey, hey, clean your room. But there have been problems with these uh, assistants it's... where uh, someone missays something and then orders ba- Barbie's Playhouse from Amazon, right? Next thing you well, mean. then they had the news report from a San Diego news station where they're talking about the device ordering a Playhouse, and then they had reports of like 15 Playhouses being ordered because that <laughs> device was on TV and the devices in these other homes heard the report and ordered the Playhouse. <laughs> It's a problem. That's crazy. Got to figure that out. Oklahoma City police say a fight over Star Trek and Star Wars led to an assault and the arrest of Jerome Dwayne White, 23. White and another man were in a living room when a parent of an apartment when they began arguing if Star Wars or Star Trek was better. The victim told police he became frustrated and walked back to his room. White allegedly followed the man and shoved him to the ground. Wow. The victim got back up and told police that he stated, you want to replay that? And was once again shoved to the ground. Police say White <laughs> then wrapped his arms around the victim's neck and began choking him. The victim was near unconsciousness when he pulled out a pocket knife. Wow. No word on, so it kind of escalated. No word on if the two men were able to actually answer the question, though. Not alive. There was an arrest, but they didn't solve the, the, the question. Is it Star Wars or Star Trek? In, well, of course it's Star Trek. And Star Wars. Oh. And then the next argument they got into was, who's better, Captain Kirk or... Captain Picard. Yeah, that's a big question there is, too. Is that is that a big question that it is, and it's more generational. Yeah, and I would go Picard just because I watched all those. I I didn't really like the first one. It just seemed super old and yeah. I mean, it looked ridiculous. The you know the special effects weren't really that special. Look how picky you are. Yeah, there was no holodeck in the first one. It wasn't the second one, which is pretty cool. Right. Just saying. But would there be a second one without the first one? That's true. But I don't need the foundational elements. I get it. Okay. Boldly go, live long and prosper, all that jazz. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really cool. Because in back then, that was right. as technologically, you know, incredible as you could see. Warp speed. And, and you're, you're, you're caught. How old were you when you saw that, you think? Probably five, six. There you go. As a kid, that those are like yeah. huge Sweet. influential yeah. moments. Me, I watch it and go, the, the other one's just better to watch. But as a teenager... Uh, I would rather watch Battlestar Galactica back go. in the day. It seemed more real. Did you see Star Wars when it first came out in the theaters, though? Yes. You did? I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Wow. In fact, I used to I hang out you. in the theater an entire day to watch ever, to watch it like five times. Huh. That's where I found my first girlfriend. Was she dressed as Chewy? <laughs> no, back then we weren't. We didn't even have that. That would be annoying. The hair would get in your popcorn, and oh yeah, yeah. 
Not not good on convert. Not the big conversationalist that no. you would want. Just sort of <laughs> yells at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like nah. It's, it's Shoot, great though. Hey, here's a here. Speaking of Chewy, uh, who tips better, Republicans or Democrats? If you have to choose somebody, uh, which which party are better tippers? Republicans or Democrats? Like Jeffrey. Tipping you over? Pushing you over? Getting a tip at a restaurant. Oh. So if you are a waiter or a waitress, would you rather have a Republican male show up or a Democratic female? Well, it's tough. It's tough because it, se- well, it seems like a lot of people would argue maybe Republicans – no, I'm going to say Democrats. You're going to say Democrats. Why? Because they care more. They give more. They they seemingly care more. Don't they believe in more handouts? That's you. Yeah, that's true. So maybe, but maybe they, they, they feel like well. maybe it's they public assistance. I'm curious to know what you guys think. I mean, you have the answer in front of you. I have the so. answer right here, and uh, Terry's already read the answer. So the answer is the best tippers tend to be male Republicans from the Northeast mm. that use their credit cards. Wow. Hmm. Twenty percent is the average tip for that group of people. I just thought we meant in general, not one specific area of the country. That is no, but so I guess overall in their study, the best tippers tend to be males from the Northeast. Hmm. Not a bad thing. Males from the Midwest or the mountain region area, horrible tippers. Even if you are a Republican, I'm a great tipper. Twenty percent, pretty much all the time. I, hmm. I constantly have a problem with the whole concept of you're going to pay your employees less and expect the people coming in to, to pay more difference. and cover the I fact know. that you're not paying their full salary. It's horrible. Yeah. That's Except like my sister would come home with $300 in tips. And then is that the same for the cooking staff, the then preparation staff? The they people, share their tips usually. They, so they kind of break out their tips. Are the people in others. back – Fully dependent on the people serving food to do a good job. Probably. But they, maybe they pay the people in back a full pay. Okay. I bet they pay them a real full hourly. Because this weekend we ordered food. But I order it just online and then go pick it up. Oh, really? But then they say, hey, you can include a tip. And I go, for what? No. Yeah, I'm the not. Tips I had service, to pick it up right? for crying out loud. You should tip me. And then my wife's like, well, they share tips with the people in back. And I go, so they're paying nobody of a, a, an actual yeah. salary. Everything is dependent on this tip situation. Yeah. So what kind of business is this? Let's see. It's, this is Russia again getting involved. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, worst tippers tend to be female Democrat Southerners that there, use cash. There you go. Cash may not be the best way to tip because if your remaining cash, if you throw down a 20, it may not total 15%. Right. I think and, the only way you're getting a cash tip is because people are trying to rid their purses and wallets of that nuisance that is cash and change. Who even carries cash anymore? My wife doesn't allow me to carry cash. Yeah, we're kind of in the same boat. Maybe that's yeah. Maybe I wouldn't. I, shouldn't have I said wouldn't that out give loud. you my cash either. <laughs> I don't know honestly that I, I haven't had a dollar bill to my name in cash for at least two months. Yeah, since your tooth came out and you yeah. got a visit. By the way, I did pull two teeth out of my child's mouth the other day. He says, this tooth is loose, and I pulled it, but I actually ended up pulling the wrong loose tooth. Oh, wow. And he's like, Dad, you didn't even pull the tooth, right tooth. I'm like, how many teeth are loose in your mouth? <laughs> and then I had to pull a second one. That's usually an interrogation technique in movies. Is grab, that it? Grab the pliers. Pull and, your teeth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like Marathon Man, Lawrence Olivier. Is it safe? Yeah. Is it safe? While he's torturing we, Dustin Hoffman. Are we previewing your movie show? No. 
That one was for free. Okay. <laughs> Seems like we're always doing a preview of your movie show. Yeah. But the movie show can be caught every Friday at 11 Eastern. I want to see if you can get the name right this time. I totally can. <laughs> um, it's called Screen Cleaning with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Wow. And we, we play it in the last hour of the Matt Townsend show to get you ready for the weekend, except Jeff keeps trying to drop in screen cleaning opportunities throughout the entire week. Well, don't you, throughout your entire show, tell people where else they can listen to your show? Like every five minutes you're doing that. Yeah, but that's different because my show is your show and your show is my show. That sounded like that. I think that was from Confucius. Yeah, Confucius once said... My show is your show. Uh, here's a little advice. Democrats tip more. Southerners tip more. Northeasterners keep going. The rest of us need to live like Northeasterners, apparently. And credit card makes you a better tipper. So maybe use less cash. I don't know. Use your debit card. Uh, that's it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how kindergartners need more playtime, helping you uh, raise healthy kids. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you ask any kindergartner what their favorite part of school is, most will probably say recess or playing, make-believe with their friends. But even though it might be a kid's favorite, maybe only 15 to 30 minutes of their entire day is dedicated to the playground or sandbox. The rest of the time that they're in school, kindergartners are in their desks prepping for their next assignment. And so are today's kindergartners getting too much academic pressure? Christopher Brown, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction in Early Childhood Education at the University of Texas, suggests that recess and playtime for kindergartners might uh, not just be a break from schoolwork, but also a vital part of their education. And he joins us today to talk to us about why kids play is so important and why we might want to be giving them more of it. Uh, Chris Brown, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And I know this is study or research that you're you're just basically barely getting underway. But uh, talk to us about what you're finding out in your research about uh, the kindergartners' time uh, and their need for play. Sure. Well, this actually, my work is a little different than some work that's come out of the University of Virginia recently. Um, there's been some work there where they looked at longitudinal data, uh, data from 1998 to 2010 documenting how teachers, where they're spending their time and their instruction across the school year. And they found that teachers have shifted their instruction much more towards academic content, uh, reading and math instruction. And in my own work, I've been interested in how kindergarten has changed. I'm a former kindergarten teacher. Um, I taught in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I went back to my PhD, actually, because I was really curious and personally struggling with this idea that we need to force kids to learn more academic content in kindergarten and as well as in preschool, where the research isn't as clear about why they need to do that so early. Right. Um, And so what I've been looking at now is, well, we have this changed kindergarten, and I want to talk to different stakeholders. Well, what do they think about it? And so I've been sharing a video that I made with a kindergarten teacher a year ago um, documenting what's a typical day in kindergarten look like. And across most of the day, kids are, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, in academic work. And I'm wondering whether or not this is the best thing we should be doing for kids in the classroom. And so 
the data that I'm collecting is just talking to different stakeholders and seeing what they think about what they're witnessing in the video and what they think should be happening in kindergarten. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's been, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. What about letting them play? Like, it, in the end, aren't we finding out that learning academic stuff, it's important and great, but in the end, there's other things they need to learn, like, you know, using their curiosity and um, get along with each other. <laughs> yeah. And social skills. And I mean, and it's like in the end, most of us aren't into academic work anyway by the time we're graduated. So maybe no. the social skills and, and figuring out how to be happy would be better. Well, and also thinking about how to think intellectually. It's yeah. not just learning how to read or just learning how to count. But, you know, I have this question that I want to learn more information about. How do I do that? Um, when I get stuck on a problem, how might I work through it and yeah. have the persistence and the, you know, the motivation to keep moving forward? And play, when we think of play, we think of kids you know, doing silly things, but really play is intellectual work for children. It's an opportunity for them to process, make sense of the world they're living in, and they do that typically with other people, which you know, as we get older, we have to work with others to solve problems. Right. And so play gives them a great opportunity to just start to develop these skills early on. And, and nothing, nothing is more realistic to life than two kids fighting over a teeter totter. Exactly. Right. Or, I mean, yeah. th- that's right. Th- that's marriage one hundred and one. <laughs> it's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and yet it's interesting. Like it's I, maybe what it is is we feel pressure as educators, as administrators, as parents to get this knowledge into their heads. So we think we'll push it earlier instead of just, you know, doing it at an appropriate time. Well, I think that's that's a huge issue. We also, you know, as they say, the world is getting flatter. And people are, a lot of parents that I talk to are very worried about their kids and the future they're going to have in this world. So they're trying to do anything they can to help them get a leg up. And so part of that, they think, is that they have to have their kids, you know, learning academic content early on. And one of the big things I talk to with friends, families, other colleagues is, you know, you just need to give kids opportunity to have time with you, to engage them intellectually, to have conversations with them, to talk with them about the world around them. And if they become curious about the world, they're going to pick up those skills they need to be able to work successfully in it. Yeah. So if you force kids to read, it's much different than giving kids books, reading to them, and giving them the chance to see that literacy is a lot of fun. Um, and it gives them an opportunity to learn a whole lot of the new stuff that they're really curious about. And couldn't you do that on the playground? You can. Right? You I mean, can do that in the classroom. Yeah. You can do it. There's all sorts of different places you can do that. You can do that in your home with your kids when you're making dinner. I mean, mm-hmm. those, all those things can happen uh, in a very natural environment. So I think the worry is when parents get very concerned that if kids aren't where their friends are, um, that there's something wrong with them. And there are kids, don't get me wrong, my wife's a physical therapist, kids do have developmental delays, um, and pediatricians are very helpful in finding those out for you. Um, but if you, if someone's friends reads before your child, you shouldn't be freaking out about that. <laughs> I mean, unless the kid's 18, right? Oh, yeah. If they're 18, then you're like, you ought to start freaking out. <laughs> yeah, if, they are, if they're in school at 18, there's a problem going <laughs> but on. That, I think that's it, and, and I, that's why I love the idea that you're – you're asking these questions and you're doing it, it seems like, in a kind of um, uh, more in a – what's the word? I guess um, – Empirical? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're you're going out and you're actually creating the data to, to maybe squash some of these other ideas. We're pushing kids really hard. What do they miss when they're not – or what do they gain in play and what do they miss when they don't get enough play? Uh, well, 
it, it depends on when play happens across the day. So in play, they gain a lot of different opportunities to foster the intellectual development. Um, one thing play gives an opportunity to do is to process what they're learning in their world, um, whether it is something fascinating or terrific or whether it's something stressful and horrifying. Um, play is an opportunity for kids to help them make sense of what's happening in their lives. Um, and so that's a really important factor there. Intellectually, play gives them a chance to experiment, to try new things out in a safe place where they aren't going to be punished or seen as doing something wrong because they're experimenting with sand or with mud or with blocks or with right. Um, also, play gives them a chance to foster conversations with their peers about their world um, and also to create fantasies about what they'd like their world to be like. And, and there's just all these different opportunities. In school, you mentioned recess. Recess is a time for kids to recharge. It gives their brains a break. Um, I, I think one thing we forget as adults, how much we ask kids to do in school. Learning to read is a very hard mm. skill to develop, and it takes time. You can't just do it instantly. Uh, and, it, and kids, when we keep pushing all this academic content on their minds, it's a lot of intellectual work. And so they do need breaks from that. They need an opportunity to recharge, refresh, and move forward. If we don't give them those breaks, they burn out, they, they get frustrated, and they give up. And so we have to be really careful with that. Yeah, and stress out. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. Oh, yeah. that's intense. There are kids in third grade that are stressed, and that's scary. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, they got the rest of their life to stress. Yes, they do. <laughs> but, I mean, and two, it's almost like we create, we condition them to get stressed, right? Because especially a kid stressed. that might really need to get out and just run around. Uh, no, nah, we're not, we're not going to let you do that. Just a little bit. Not a lot. Yeah. No, and, and, that's, and that can be troubling. And I think it... I, I hope I don't come across as blaming teachers here. Right. I'm not. I'm not doing that at all. We're in a system right now where we're focused on this idea that academic achievement is the marker of success, and we start testing our kids really early. So teachers are under a lot of oh, pressure to make sure kids are performing well. So much pressure, and I mean, and blamed for a lot of it when, oh. when it's a system that we've created. Um, and parents that push the system. Let's let's take a quick break, Chris. We're talking with Christopher Brown, who is um, doing some studies on kindergartners and their need to play. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Christopher Brown. He's an associate professor of curriculum and instruction in early childhood education at the University of Texas and is doing a lot of research on um, our kindergartners as a past kindergarten teacher. He's trying to help us figure out what's the best mix of um, ex- or, you know activity, free time, even, I guess, you know, recess, but uh, playtime in order to, to maximize their learning and even minimize their stresses. Chris Brown, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Such an interesting idea, too. Um, and again, we don't want to... Teachers, they're not the ones to blame. There's there's just a lot of pressure to get these, these kids up to speed and get them into Harvard. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> there's, well, there's a lot of pressure to get all kids you know, up to speed so they, everyone goes to college is the goal, right. people will say. And, that, and, that's a, and that's a big question we need to ask as a society is what do we see being uh, – what do we want kids to be when they grow up? Um, you know, what, what should be their opportunities and how do we get them there? Um, it's not just about also, you know, finding a job, but it's also helping them develop the skills to be able to 
you know, live and operate in a democratic society. Right. And, and play is one of those places where we learn to do that. We're, as you said earlier, you know, we learn to get along but we're fighting over the teeter-totter. Yeah. Um, and we learn there are other people out there that have different views about the world. And how do we get along with each other in that type of environment? Well, couldn't it be just so much more experiential where I, I was – I've taught, not to brag, but I have taught it in church in my Sunday school time. I've taught – uh, the the preschoolish kids, um, and you know what? There's a point where the idea of pulling out a lesson is pretty much not going to happen. So <laughs> it, that's when we would just pull out the little rope and have everyone hang on to it, and we'd go take everyone for a walk around the building. And, and you have a conversation while you do that's that. That's exactly what you do. And you can watch them, and you can go talk about flowers and tell them that God made the flowers. And you can give the lessons as you go. Oh, very much so, and and that takes a lot of time, and yeah. it's not it's not it's quick, not structured, it's not easy. Yeah. No, and and you know, kindergarten classrooms should be loud and noisy places, um, but they're in schools where kids are in fifth grade doing very different type of work, and sometimes that's really frowned upon. Mm. Um, so it's a lot of pressure on teachers to you know make sure everybody's quiet and orderly, um, and and I I can't tell you what a hard job it is for kindergarten teachers uh. when you have twenty two kids and one adult. Yeah, um, And it's a lot of pressure. And so they're trying to do everything they can to help kids be successful in school. But that success is usually typically very narrow. Uh, can they read? Can they count? And that's all they're really worried about. That's it. And you got, whatever, eight months to do it. Right. And uh, and don't make much noise and keep your door shut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so sad. Talk about – so your research, though, it's validating this hypothesis, huh, that the kids need the time and the teachers agree. Well, I think it's it's – I wouldn't say validating. I think a lot of people recognize that kids, everyone wants kids to be happy and successful in kindergarten. No one's going to say kindergarten should be a horrible place. Right. Uh, so it's trying to find that space, though, within the dynamic and environment that we're working in right now where come third grade, kids do need to be reading on grade level. Um, and so how do we change that conversation around? Well, reading is just one of many skills we want kids to have when they leave kindergarten. Um, and kids, I'm not saying we shouldn't teach academics. I would never, ever say that. But it should be in a balanced approach where academics are part of a larger intellectual investigation within the classroom where we help kids be successful. Mm. Um, in my work, which is in early child education, a lot of conversation is around what's wrong with kids when they come in the school door. And that's really disconcerting to me because we set it up in a way that kids are already failing. Um, I hope that with my work that we can start shifting the conversation and looking at all the talents kids bring into the classroom and how can we build off those to help them be successful in the classroom. Oh, I like that. And uh, I mean, I just look at, too, the diversity of classrooms, right? So oh, yeah. in Utah, a classroom in, an, in a suburb, a wealthier suburb, compared to inner city, compared to other cities, compared to East Coast, West Coast, uh, compared to uh, multiple languages. I mean, it's a, there's no one model, is there? No, there's not. And it takes a skilled person to take all those 22 different people and help them get where they need to be by the end of the school year. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I was doing an interview a week ago, and a, a, the person asked me, do you think teachers are lazy? And I was shocked oh, that they wow. asked me that question. Um, and, and I've worked in schools for the past 20 years, and I have never met a lazy teacher. No. Teachers are working really hard at this. It's that we're asking for specific outcomes from kids, and we're not thinking about the bigger picture. And, yeah, no we, one, yeah. I'll go ahead. I was, I, I was thinking we think, we think that we can build a system 
and we can just pump out kids with degrees. Right. It's not it's got to be people touching people's lives and reading people well and setting people up to succeed. Right. And and people that are wanting to do those things. Yeah. I mean, no one asks kids, are you happy? That's not <laughs> <Right>. a test <tech> question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feel. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's more but you know, it's... if you're presented with a problem, how might you solve it? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's really important. And trust the teachers. I guess that's yeah. the problem is you know why? I'll tell you. Here's the sol. Here's the solution, Chris. It's because okay. there's unions. Okay, teachers are unionized. You know, and what ends up happening is it becomes a political issue. But the, you go sit in your kindergartner's class for a year, and then you'll get a taste. Um, teachers don't mean ill. They they we all need to kind of trust the people that are doing what they're doing. Trust the well, teachers I, and educate them. Most teachers, like in Texas, as a right to work state, so the union question is very different. Yeah, um, I don't want to go down that. No, right? No, it's it's just uh, that's it gets political, right? It does, it does, and and it's easy to blame teachers, right? Uh, and which is unfortunate. Um, and so we need to really think about what are we asking teachers to do. And I think there's also one myth that is that anybody can teach, and we don't see what a profession it really is. And right. I think that's something, I'm a teacher educator, so that's something I really talk with my students about, is you know, thinking about as a profession, how to, what skills do we need to be successful in the classroom? And there are a lot, and it takes time. Um, and it's a lot of pressure on teachers to be performing as experts as soon as they walk in the door. Mm. When we know with the research, it does take time to become an expert. You bet. As with anything. I mean, it takes time to become an expert radio host. Oh, you, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like I'm in kindergarten. Um, talk about uh, we got to wrap it up, but talk sure. about um, what we can do as parents to you know facilitate this to help our education system, to help our teachers and our kids sure. maximize playtime and learning time. Uh, on a general perspective, one get to know your teachers and be their allies. I think parents have a lot more power than they know. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times when parents interact with teachers, it's over a problem or an issue rather than thinking about how they can support them. Um, another thing is, as a parent, we are in an election year. Education is not part of the conversation right now, and I wish it were. Right. Um, we need to have this conversation. And the big issue is kids don't vote. If kids could vote, it may be a different conversation. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> totally so, true. <laughs> They'd be voting their teachers out, though. That's the <laughs> oh, problem. A lot of kids, well, a lot of kindergartners no, love their kindergarten. No, a lot teachers. of kids <laughs> love their teachers. That's true. No. That's so and true. Most, most survey research shows kids like their teachers, they like their schools. Yeah. And so that's something to think about. Um, and then also, you know, just as parents, thinking about how are they supporting their kids at home. I'm not saying to drill and kill reading or literacy, but just are they engaging in, with their kids in ways that help them foster a love of learning, foster a love of being curious? Um, are they giving them the space and the opportunity to just play and be kids? Mm. And, and I think a lot of issues, parents under this pressure and the stress feel like they have to schedule everything in a child's life so that they're ready for school. And they need to recognize that there is a lot of value in free play, outdoor play, and a lot of value for them engaging with their kids in play. Yeah. No, great stuff. Chris, keep up the great work. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Christopher Brown, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction in Early Childhood Education at the University of Texas. Go Longhorns. <laughs> good stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up uh, on their show at the top of the hour. Then we'll do a little hero of the day. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends. It is that time to uh, head down to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation and find out what is coming up on their show today. Apparently, uh, Spencer and Jerem are out, so they've left the show in the hands of Jason Shepard and Brian Logan. Let's go down and find out uh, what they're planning. Hello, gentlemen. The capable hands. The capable hands. I, I, I totally meant to say that. This is a big deal. Like, uh, you guys could do pretty much anything you want on this show. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's yours. What, are you, are you going to throw? Are you going to do something crazy? Something that's never been done before? Um, you know what? I'm not sure that crazy would necessarily describe <laughs> either one of us. Well, some like have said say, Brian's a little crazy. Yeah, I would like to say I, I just it, my crazy happens in the moment. He's a wild and crazy so, guy. I think I think Jason's right though. I mean. As far as like strategically planning out craziness, yeah, that's no. not, that like, just doesn't happen. Yeah, I don't know if you can plan out craziness. It just ensues. Oh, no, you can't. That's no, you it. Can't. That's no, exactly you right. No, you can't. No, you can't. You, See, there's good crazy and there's bad crazy. I you? would be considered the good crazy where yeah. like, I'm, not, like, I'm, not, I'm not thinking of, of something crazy to do. I just do crazy. It just appears. Yeah, where somebody that's like planning it out is like, I'm going to plan crazy. Do that's you guys ever feel like – Premeditated craziness yeah. just doesn't work. That's do, when you yeah. got to be scared. Do you ever feel like it's just like boiling inside of you and then the craziness <laughs> just bursts out? Yeah, it's definitely a buildup, man. Like yeah. the voices in my head? Like gas. <laughs> it's like a gas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like exactly like the voices in your head that we've been working on off. Cra- crazy is contagious, though. So when when you know when the crazy comes out, just got to be aware. Anybody oh, yeah. that's around and the circumference gets in the radius, you know, gets uh, gets crazy too. So hey, I, here here's a crazy question for you. Um, let's just say that an Alabama man steals the Atlanta Braves golf cart. Okay. okay. Let's just say that happened from the Brave Stadium. Okay. And then, you know, and then crashes it. He was trying to steal it because he wanted to go sell it. How much do you think you, you would pay for a Braves non-crashed golf cart, but you know it's hot and stolen? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess for like a diehard Braves fan, you could get a couple uh, couple K out of that. Don't maybe? you think? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a $4,500 golf cart. You ought to be able on the black market, you ought to be able to get <laughs> like two grand out of it, especially like if it's got the big baseball cap yeah. on oh, top yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say I would I would pay a couple grand. For yeah, it. I would too. Only, but I would flip it though. I wouldn't. I yeah, yeah. I'm not a Braves fan. I'm not, <laughs> You'd I'm fence it. a baseball fan. You try to um, fence it. Yeah, you got to get out from under that. Cause... But like, here's what I want to know. I mean, like those things go basically the speed of like a little rascal. <laughs> like, like when you're taking that, it's not like you're no. getting away in a uh-huh. high speed chase. But I think someone could literally run you down. Oh, yeah. oh like a cop. But you saw, you saw like a cop. The, the little, you, you watched the Little Rascals the movie, right? Yeah. Right. And you see how they they tuned it up a little bit. Like they're I forgot the name of their. The car that they had, but they tuned it up a little bit and Did, you know got some extra boost. But do, do, do that, you guys right? when you when you guys go golfing? I know you do a lot of celebrity golf stuff. I don't um, golf. I putt putt though. But but don't you don't you ever notice that when you're in a golf cart and you lean forward a little bit that you actually go faster? Don't you notice that? I I still uh, think that the the best way to do that would be to cut out the floor and go Fred Flintstone style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just gotta you just gotta make that noise and then you and Fred start. I've, yeah, I've been driven a lot of golf carts. I I remember we stole one from Athletics. It's probably bad. You mean borrowed. You yeah, borrowed that's it. what I meant to say. Statute of limitations is we, still is not run out. We borrowed we borrowed it because we needed rides to a car. 
in the parking lot, yeah. which was like five feet away. Isn't that when BYU had their first drive-by in a golf cart? <laughs> and somebody was, you guys were, you guys were throwing stuff out of the cart. Yeah, I remember yeah, it was, that. Yeah, it wasn't me. I, was, I mean, I was a driver, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, it was good it times. Was, it was water balloons too. So good times. Harmless. Oh, good times. Harmless. Hey, uh, you guys are still going to do the show. So, what's the what's the topic today? What are we going to talk on? Ah, uh, yes. We talk about, uh, well, it usually comes up at least once, and by once I mean a thousand times, <laughs> the, the possibility of a special season. Ooh, so oh. we're going to talk about a special season yeah. and what it would take to make 2017 a special season for BYU football. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about today. Well, they'd run, the, they'd run the whole table. Of course, of course. Run the whole table, go to the college football playoffs, yeah. win the national championship, and then you can have two trophies uh-huh. in the student-athlete building. Are there no trophies in there right now? Well, there's, there's a national championship. Yeah, there, okay, then yeah. you would have two national two championships. Oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so we're going to talk about that. Okay. Uh, Blaine Fowler's going to join us. Sweet. Uh, Ronnie Perry from uh, BYU Women's Volleyball and Team USA. She's going to join us in Studio B today. Mm. And how about this? I don't even know if Brian knows this. We are going to talk about morning lawn mowing etiquette. Oh, yes. Oh, I got a story to tell. Like, is there a start time you mean? Oh, yeah. You may have just touched on it. Oh, I hate I got that. a story to tell, Matt. There is an etiquette, right? There's yes. a protocol. And I how, saw somebody violating that etiquette. Did you, you did you get out and you know? No, because it wasn't near my house, so I didn't care. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it was not your problem. Hey man, but that's we're smart. Gonna, I want to get Brian's take on this because this, I, is, I, this is important stuff. You should have said something though. You, you know what would what would Jesus do? That's, Jesus you know what, Brian? And this is what's so great about you. You always bring it back to religion. I mean, it's so. It's, it, because that's a great question. With a lawnmower, what would he do? Yeah, well, exactly. What would he do? I mean, he would stop and say, hey, that's you shouldn't do that right now. Yeah. According to, you know. Right. Or yeah. send a flood or something. Well, it's just like, I mean, if you want to go a little bit deeper, it's just like, hey, uh, if, if I left you with this commandment of put others before yourself. There you go. You, this is really bad this, of you doing this at this time. No, but what if, so. he's, what if he's up early mowing someone else's lawn? Oh, Ooh. you just, you, See? Man, you just, you I mean, doing service for others. I like, know. you can't complain. That's no, why they call me Dr. Matt. You can't complain about that. <laughs> You've just found the loophole. <laughs> See, so you, you guys are going to explore that in depth, I can already yes. tell. Yes. yes. We're going to break it down. This is going to be great. Great show. And it's only about six minutes away. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it, guys. Jason Shepard, Brian Logan, they are carrying the torch for BYU Sports Nation. Six minutes away. And then you can just sit back and enjoy. Thanks, guys. Knock them dead. Really, uh, that'll be a lot of fun. It's always fun. And then I love it when Brian gets all religious on us. It's just the guy just has a huge heart and a huge faith. Um, we got so much more to still talk about. Of course, that the story I was talking about with him about the Atlanta Braves golf cart. Police say an Alabama man is accused of stealing a golf cart from the Braves stadium and crashing it. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that Marcus Jerry Stevens is accused of stealing the $4,500 golf cart and then uh, crashing it around a metal pole around 1.40 a.m. He fled on foot but was later arrested. Pretty sure that intoxicants were somehow involved. Maybe. You, you never see, know. You see a lot of golf cart crashes in your neighborhood, I though. totally do. Oh, no, I really do. My son told me just the other night he had to push one, some guy's 
like alternator or something broke on his. I don't know what it was. It was the golf tornado. The golf tornado. Hey, uh, a man is charged with breaking into twelve homes that have been tented off for termites. St. Petersburg, Florida, said a Florida man broke into the twelve homes. Uh, David Cooper, thirty-six, faces charges including residential burglary, armed residential burglary, and dealing in stolen property. Police department said the incidents occurred over the last five weeks. And uh, he didn't wear any gear when he went into these homes that have been tented off. And then they let off like a termite bug and, or bomb. And then, you know, you should be wearing ventilators. And if you've ever seen the movie or the TV show Breaking Bad, you would have known all of this. Which apparently he probably did know because he got the <laughs> idea that way. Investigators recovered rifles, a handgun, ammunition, jewelry, cash. Holy cow. What was he thinking, though, not going in there with the mask? Was well, he just thinking he was stealing from a circus? Yeah, he probably thought the circus was in town. Hmm. Get, go under the big tent and take whatever you got to take. Steal that elephant. Yeah. It's not a... I mean, it's it's not like he's not being creative. He thought he was going to get in there and find the elephant. By the way, the big circus is out of business now. It's so sad. Barnum and Bailey. That's just I tragic. mean, I never went, but, you know... Oh, you didn't? It's one of those things that... Uh, you don't realize what you've got until it's gone, but then you just don't care all that much. Yeah. It sounds better in <laughs> retrospect, right? In hindsight. Uh, flight was delayed after a woman throws coins into a, an airplane engine. Holy cow. A senior female passenger threw some coins into the aircraft's engine before boarding a China Southern Airlines flight, which delayed the flight for over four hours at the airport because of an inspector an inspection of, on its engine. The woman uh, that uh, they're surnamed Q, she's 80 years old, threw coins into the engine when she was about to board the aircraft, I guess for luck. You know, I guess that's... You got to make a wish. Yeah, you've never done that before. I've I have in like a you know like a pond. Come on, I've never thrown anything into an airplane engine. It's kind of a rite of passage, especially if you're sitting like in the emergency row and you're right on the wing. Really? Yeah. I did not know that you could even take the window down. It's hmm. kind of crazy. I mean, I've alternative a lot. facts. She claimed to throw the coins in the engine to wish a safe flight. There you go. Yeah. Has she not watched the movie Sully, where a, a goose went through the engine? And yeah. So anyway, once the coins go in, you got to shut everything down until you inspect it. Yeah. Brother. Maybe How- she thought it was like a video game, an yeah. arcade game. Why not? Why not? Hey, as we wrap up the show, we like to always uh, talk about a hero of the day. Our hero uh, today is a quick-thinking waitress that saved the life of a nine-year-old girl in Paramus, uh, New Jersey, or Paramus, probably. Uh, as CBS2's Mark Liverman reports, the waitress heard the girl's screams and rushed to help. I was thinking I was going to either be in the hospital or dead, said Kai Rogers, a nine-year-old girl. Uh, Kai said she would never forget the terrifying seconds as she was eating chicken fingers at a Chili's restaurant in Paramus, and all of a sudden... She started to choke. Kai's mother, Tara Harvey, was next where she knew how to do the Heimlich maneuver, but she said she panicked. She just had to, that look in her eye. Mommy, please help me. And I was, I was like, I had nothing I could do, Harvey said. I drank something, um, Kai said, and then it started to get worse. So that's when she started choking. And that's when Dina Gonzalez stepped in. As Gonzalez heard all the commotion from the other side of the restaurant, she came running over to Kai's table. Kai was still choking, and Gonzalez performed the Heim- Heimlich maneuver 
over on Kai and saved her life. I put my hands on her stomach, kind of, and just pushed three times, and boom, the food came out. So you are the hero of the day, Dina Gonzalez. Thank you for not just being an awesome waitress and uh, just a great person, but saving Kai's life. Also, um, we probably need someone to go in and now leave a really good tip. She probably wouldn't even take it. Why would you? When you're a hero. That's the show, my friends. Uh, To be a hero, sometimes you just got to be there, right? Be willing to step in and keep your head clear, keep your head straight. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern time, right here on BYU Radio. Stick with us, though, because just in just a minute, BYU Sports Nation is up next.